Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and uh, I am super excited to have this epic presuppositional apologetics conversation with my brothers here, um, who I will be introducing in just a moment, or they'll be introducing themselves in just a moment. But just a couple of things real quick, um, just to give people a heads up, is kind of ironic. We have an epic presuppositional apologetics discussion today, but I actually am going to have uh, Jay Warner Wallace, who is an evidentialist, I'm going to have him on my show tomorrow. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the evidence for the existence of the historical Jesus, um, the uniqueness of Jesus, and the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So if people are kind of wondering, hey, what's up with that? You're a presuppositionalist. Why do you have an evidentialist on? Well, listen, presuppositionalists are very concerned with evidence as well. From our perspective, everything is evidence for God. But I think it's still very important that presuppositional apologists are able to kind of marshal the data within a consistent presuppositional framework. So I think we're going to learn a lot from Jay Warner Wallace. Despite our disagreements, I think we're going to have a great conversation. So that's tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Also, June 7th, my online course on presuppositional apologetics will be starting. Um, I, I, I put a link in the comments there if anyone's interested in signing up for that. Um, you can do that. Classes start on June 7th. Now, without further ado, I would like to ask all of my guests to uh, unmute themselves and um, we'll go in order as I see it. Uh, we kind of look like a very disgruntled Brady Bunch situation here. Um, <laughs> I feel sorry for our parents. If we were all related, that would be uh, pretty intense. But uh, so we got a pretty good audience in, right? So I think this is a good place to start. Um, Sai, it's been a while since you've kind of been on the on YouTube on the YouTube scene. So why don't you introduce yourself to folks who may not know who you are, and reintroduce yourself to folks who are very familiar with you. My name is Side Tenbrunkate. I'm from Canada. I was born and raised in a Christian home, and I had a passion for defending my faith. And um, I realized that most of my life I was doing it wrong. And by the grace of God, I was introduced to presuppositionalism. Um, probably about 14, 15 years ago now, and um, just as excited today as I was about it back then. And um, yeah, thank you for having me on. All right. Well, I'm very happy for you to be on. Anthony, how about you? Who are you, man? I am a pastor in South Carolina in the Presbyterian Church of America. In that capacity, I serve with Metanoia Prison Ministries, which, as the name indicates, focuses on prisoners. Uh, but I also have a great love for evangelism and apologetics, always have since the time of my conversion. I thought that everybody needed to hear this good news, quickly found out people didn't think it was good news and wanted to argue against being forgiven of their sins and, and granted eternal life. So I got interested in apologetics and eventually presuppositionalism. Awesome. All right, Brian, how about you? Yeah, my name is Brian Knapp. I'm a contractor living in the Northern Virginia area. And um, I got introduced to apologetics in general right after 9-11 happened. Um, got involved in an online chat group, started debating easy stuff like foreknowledge and free will. Uh, found out right away I was over my head. Went to, <laughs> went to a local Christian bookstore, met up with a good who, a fellow who became a good friend of mine, introduced me to Bonson and Presup. Um, and at, at that point, we started a study group together listening to his uh, lectures uh, he and I co-founded Choosing Hats back in around 2005, I think it was. And uh, at this point, I've just continued, you know, the usual hopping around Facebook, doing teaching uh, at church, interacting mm. with friends and family and coworkers, that kind of now, thing. Now, is the, are you referring to Chris? Chris Bolt? Chris Bolt. Chris Bolt. Yeah, so folks might know Chris as well. I've had him on the show uh, a while back. So thank you for that. Uh, Matt? 
You, yeah, you, what? Uh, <laughs> who are you and why are oh, you here? <laughs> sorry, long-term memory problem. Um, yeah, I'm Matt Slick, uh, and I'm the founder and director of the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, CARM.org. Been working on it for, uh, in October, it'll be 27 years. Written numerous books, been on radio for 17 years. I do a lot of uh, impromptu debates, discussions, and apologetics. Uh, I'm on Discord, Clubhouse, uh, many uh, social areas, uh, social media areas, uh, working on articles all the time, working on books and stuff like that. Generally annoying and um, really just try and share the faith with, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I definitely presuppose his truth that when you argue from that perspective, the Trinitarian God, everything makes sense. Nothing else does. Without him, nothing makes sense. You argue from that perspective, you're going to do well. And so uh, there you go. Thank you. Matt, Matt Slick actually is the closest uh, to being omnipresent everywhere. He, every, if I'm on Discord, he's there. He's debating someone on Facebook. He's on YouTube. So he's definitely a busy guy. So me, we, USA.life. I can go into a bunch of other ones, but yeah. <laughs> That's right. All right, Joshua, how about, your, how about you introduce yourself now? Uh, I'm Joshua Pillows. I am a musician. I played piano for most of my life. I'm an organist at a Lutheran church. Um, I also compose and teach and perform as well. Um, God saved me in March of 2016. And shortly thereafter, I was introduced to Greg Bonson. And in terms of apologetics, the rest is history. Uh, he showed me the true biblical way and I've been a presuppositionalist ever since. Hmm, thank you for that. Uh, would you like me to call you if well, you're a pastor? I feel inclined to just say, say Jimmy. Pastor Jimmy. Okay. All right. So Jimmy, uh, why don't you tell folks who you are? Yeah, I'm Jimmy. Uh, I'm a pastor in Southern California in the LA County area. Uh, I've been pastoring about for 11 years. Um, how I got into presuppositional apologetics was when I was in college. Just uh, my pastor always took me out to just the just the area where all the crazy isms are at, and we set up a table. And we just evangelize, and I just realized after a while, after finding Greg Bonson, like, hey, this is the way. Not only is it biblically faithful, um, but also as well, like, it. there's a lot of teeth, a lot of bite to a lot of worldviews. Um, so ever since then, um, I've been interested in, in more as a pastoral side of teaching the Bible and answering Bible contradiction on my blog. And one of the things pre-pandemic was also just going overseas to, for theological training of pastors, usually in the context of underground uh, churches where they might not be able to have access to come to the States for theological education. Hmm. Well, I'm super excited to see there's just the wide background that God has just been able to impact all of you guys in similar ways coming from completely different areas of ministry. That's pretty awesome. Uh, well, folks, you know who I am, so I'm not going to introduce myself and let's kind of jump right in. My first question that I want to throw out to my group here is pertaining to presuppositionalism and evangelism. So why don't, I want to start with Sai. Um, how, how has a presuppositional apologetics help inform how you do evangelism and, and perhaps maybe give us some examples as to, um, you know, how you've been able to use that within that context? Well, for me, it's made a world of difference because now I talk about the God that I actually believe in. Mm. And um, I used to read a lot of C.S. Lewis and uh, he was quite evidential in his approach. But there's one quote that really resonated with me as an evidentialist. And I'm going to read it for you. Says, okay. Nothing. Is Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist. No doctrine of that faith seems to me so spectral, so unreal as one that I've just successfully defended in a public debate. Mm. That's how 
how I felt as an evidentialist, and I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I became a presuppositionist that I realized why. It's because I wasn't talking about the God that I believed in. Yeah. Because in church, I worshipped a certainty. But out in the world, we're taught to defend a probability. God is not a probability. So for me, it's just a, ma a matter of honoring Jesus Christ as Lord when I defend my faith. The more that I do this, the more I get away from the philosophy. But I talk about the certainty of God's existence, the certainty of people's need for him for salvation. And so for me, it's made a world of difference because when I would defend my faith, I would get these arguments shoved down my throat. And I did not know why. It's because I was not, I was misrepresenting the Lord that I adore. Mm -hmm. And for me, that has made, like, I mean, that's why I'm still as excited today as I was when I learned about this 14 or 15 years ago. And um, for those of you who aren't familiar with me, if you go onto YouTube, there's a film called How to Answer the Fool. And that's uh, basically... Um, really in my earlier stages, it's more philosophical, but it's a, a using of this apologetic um, out on the street where we do not apologize for the existence of God. We talk about the certainty of God's existence and uh, present him to uh, believers and unbelievers alike. Mm, excellent. Excellent. Now, Anthony, um, obviously you've done evangelism. I've seen you uh, kind of team up with Vocab Malone and you guys are talking to the, the black Hebrew Israelites and uh, you work with uh, uh, doing evangelism with uh, Muslims and things like that. Um, how does how does presuppositionalism kind of come into how you interact with some of those groups and maybe uh, give us an example of of what that might look like? Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind is when it comes to, say, Jews and Muslims, they're they're not uniform. Jews aren't a monolithic group. In sure. fact, I've met quite a number of Jewish people over the years, lived in an area where there were a lot of Jewish people. My wife is a converted Jew. She, she came to Christ uh prior to our marriage, obviously, but uh, uh, most of the Jews I've ever met are atheists and agnostics. And so you can't just take for granted because they're Jewish that they're uh, even professing a generic God or, or right. much less the God of, of Old Testament revelation. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And the same thing goes for Muslims. Muslims are all over the map. You have various conceptions of God and everything else in Islam, you know, various conceptions. And so you have some Muslims who hold to what's called a Mu'tazili view with respect to God. Mm -hmm. uh, I won't try and get into all the, the details of this, but sure. then there are the Ashari Muslims, the Maturidi Muslims. And then here I'm talking about their, their doctrine of God per se, uh, or in particular. <clears throat> and then you of course have uh, Shia Muslims and so forth. Uh, but one thing that's common to Jews and Muslims and quite contrary to Old Testament revelation is the assumption that God can't enter into his creation. Right. And so that's really behind their opposition to the incarnation. Central to Christianity is the belief that God became incarnate, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven. And sure. so without that possibility of God entering into his creation, then the incarnation is not possible. Mm. And so one of the things that I would point out to Jews in the past, which really reveals that their ultimate assumptions are not confidence in Old Testament revelation, which is why, you know, you, again, you can't just take for granted because they call themselves sure. Jews, that they believe sure. the Old Testament. But I've presented Old Testament evidence, just copious evidence from the Old Testament that God has, in fact, entered into his creation on numerous occasions and in numerous ways. Uh, for example, God appeared to 
Hagar in Genesis 16, 7 through 14. Uh, there it's specifically the angel of the Lord, which is a, a theophany in the Old Testament. God appeared to Abraham in a very mundane way in Genesis 18, along with two angels who likewise appeared as men. They even ate with Abraham. Uh, sure. God also appeared in more uh, you know, majestic ways. For example, uh, e Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1, where he sees the, the glory of the Lord. And it, it's so overawing that Ezekiel keeps using terms like likeness and uh, as, because he, he can't bring himself to uh, think that he's actually giving you a, a uh, fully accurate description of what he saw. Uh, but so, I, I presented. So I apologize. So, so the key point for you in when you're talking with Jews and Muslims is that you identify their presuppositions as not really being based upon the authority that many of us take for granted. We think is their authority. So like the Jew, yeah. we, we think of the Jews as like, Oh, you believe in the old Testament, but a lot of Jews don't look at the old Testament and its authority in the same way that we do. Right. They're, they're reading yeah. it through post-Christian apostate rabbinic lenses. Okay. Post-Christian apostate Judaism is not old covenant religion. It just right. isn't. Right. And, you know, if we listen to Jesus in the New Testament, we would understand that Jesus didn't think that the Jews of his day worshiped the true God. Sure. You know, it wasn't like they had the true God minus Jesus. There is no God apart from Christ. Right. If you don't have the son, you don't have the father either. And that was what Jesus pressed upon them. So uh, here, though, here's where it gets into the specifics of presuppositionalism. So no matter what you present to a Jewish person, they'll find some way to excuse believing it, taking it for what it says. Mm -hmm. And I'll just cut past some of the excuses here and, and uh, observe that one of the things that I bring up with them is I say, okay, so you do believe that God has revealed himself, right? And they'll say, well, of course, right? Muslims believe that God revealed himself to Muhammad. Uh, the Quran is viewed as his speech. In fact, it's viewed as his eternal speech. Right. Uh, the the uh, Jew believes that the Torah was given by God. And so the question I ask is if God can't enter into his creation, he can't interact with his creatures, then how is it possible to speak of having a revelation from God? Right. Now, the Muslim and the Jew will do something similar, but the Muslim will say something like, well, it wasn't given to Muhammad directly from Allah. Mm -hmm. It was given to Jibreel which is the Arabic for Gabriel. And then Gabriel in turn gave it to Muhammad. But all that does is push the, push the question back a step. Okay, if, uh, if God can't enter into his creation to interact directly with Muhammad, then how pray tell does he speak to Jibreel? Mm -hmm. right? if, if Allah is so transcendent that it precludes his interaction with finite creatures, then it's just as much impossible for him to communicate with Gabriel as it would be for him to communicate with Muhammad. Right? So, so you would run... So you would run a, a reductio at, at that point. So a reductio ad absurdum. Assume the position and what they say about Allah and kind of say, if that's true, then look look what results. That's kind of a, you kind of went into kind of like a tag sort of thing. And that we can kind of see how nicely that fits in uh, to kind of a presuppositional framework speaking with with Muslims. Now I want to move on to Brian because I want to, I want you to unpack that a little bit more 
as we move along. So we, we want to give a little teaser for folks. We'll jump into more of the details there. But if anyone's interested, I actually had Anthony on, uh, and we have a two-hour episode where he uses presuppositional apologetics on Islam and Judaism. So you guys definitely want to check out that episode. Very, very good discussion there. Thank you for that, Anthony. Uh, what about you, Brian? What has your evangelistic experience been like in terms of applying presuppositionalism? Do you think about it a lot? Are you always trying to be intentional about being presuppositional in how you present issues or does it does it depend on the context? What does that look like for you? So <clears throat> for me, it took me a number of years to figure presup out. I, I found myself, because my, my audience, as it were, the people I was interacting with were spread over the internet. It was mostly online debates. Um, I didn't have the same experience as I did later on where I was interacting directly with people. And one thing I found I was doing um, was that I was constantly allowing them to pull me back into their worldview. Mm. Um, and what I think I kind of realized at that point was, um, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe God exists. I believe the Bible is true. I'm going to act that way. Right. So sure. I had studied precept for a while, but it wasn't really until I made that realization that I started to use it. Um, and from an evangelistic perspective, for me, it, it just makes all the difference. Um, you know, Bonson talks about one of the benefits of precept and tag is you don't have to, you don't have to stay up to date on all the different latest technologies and science and all these different things, um, not to, not to put down anybody who spends time, you know, learning those things and can answer right. questions in that area. But at the end of the day, everybody has to answer the same questions. Right. Um, and so the last year and a half, especially I've spent, um, interacting with a number of different Roman Catholic friends of mine. And I was a little nervous going into that because I thought, well, you know, they worship the same God, I guess, you know, there's debate over that. Um, how is, how is a precept approach going to, to work? Um, and I found I knew very little about Roman Catholicism. Mm. Um, but as, the more I learned about that, the more I was challenged to go back and learn more about, you know, reformed Christianity. Sure. And for me, that's been the greatest, I think, um, boost in my, my belief and my faith is once I started to put precept into practice, it forced me not to spend my time in looking at the latest fad or the latest technology, but just to go back and learn more about scripture, learn, you know, the origins of the Christian faith, look and see how it's changed um, over the years, go back and read the early Christian fathers, um, those kind of things. So for me, it's, it's a constant call to know what it is that I'm defending. You, you have yeah. to know Christianity, um, even even for people who you have a minimal interaction with, they're always going to hit you with one or two questions that maybe you, you haven't had before. And sure. so having a good, solid understanding of who God is, who you are, and, and why he has us here mm. is really, really important. All right. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, excellent. Um, Matt, I know that you have extensive uh, experience in evangelism. Uh, I remember the first time uh, you shared, the first time you, you knocked on someone's door uh, and you were concerned that they would think you're a Jehovah's Witness. And the first thing you said was, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. And the person who opened the door was a Jehovah's <laughs> First time I opened my mouth to witness, I blew it. <laughs> That's awesome. So, okay. So, so how has presuppositional apologetics informed the way you do evangelism in, in, in the context that you've well, done? Well, evangelism is always depends on the context and the person I'm talking to. If it's mm -hmm. an atheist, it's different than a Catholic, different than an Eastern Orthodox, uh, different than a Unitarian or a oneness or whoever. And so you also, you know, I've always got to find out where they're coming from. 
And sure. uh, atheists, more, it's a different category of atheists. I really enjoy talking to atheist agnostics. But um, with theists, uh, it, it, well, let me put it this way. With both groups, with any individual, I always try and find out what their terminus is. I call it a terminus or what their ultimate is. Mm. What is the very basic thing that is you can't go beyond or any, anything greater than what they hold to? For example, in Catholicism, the terminus with them is the church. Now, they'll say it isn't, but the church has the final authority and everything, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So the scriptures are subordinate to that, even though they say it's not, but it is. Uh, with atheists, um, what is your terminus? Well, you know, if they're going to say the God of the Old Testament is wrong for doing ABC, I'm going to say, well, then you're presupposing a universal truth value about a moral uh, condition. What justifies that? And I often ask them, what must be in place in order for your assertion to be valid? What's the universal truth? You know, you're applying certain things. So I'm always going back to find out what the what the uh, the ultimate or what I call the terminus mm -hmm. with us Christians. Uh, the terminus is God himself. Is there's nothing beyond God, nothing greater than God. He's a standard of good, standard of truth. And so if we want to define what good is, we have to uh, look to God. So, for example, really fast, when I'm talking to atheists, they'll say, how do you know God's good? And I just say, well, he tells me he is. And I don't have to say much more than that. Well, how do you know that's true? Well, because he is true. That's what his definition, that's what it is. And, you know, what I'm waiting to do is, is uh, as you know, we've talked about this. I'll often ask when during debates, I'll answer questions very succinctly with minimal information because I want them to give me more information so I can find out uh, how much rope they're going to give me to hang them with. You do know? that very well. <laughs> you yeah. do that very well. I've seen hey, that. I am slick, you know, so I get a little <laughs> up to my name. But hey, I, I, uh, I love talking about it, love doing it. And um, mm -hmm. more and more uh, lately uh, on varying uh, chat systems, I am uh, – Going, I'm learning more about how to apply presuppositional apologetics to varying topics. But I'll tell you one thing. Just think of, you know, for those who are listening and don't know how to do this, just think of an onion. What must be in place for that layer to be there? Well, the previous layer. Well, what must be in place for that to be there, the previous layer? Mm. You know, they'll say something's good or bad. Well, what must be in place in order for it to be good or bad? It's as simple as that. You just dig down and you find the terminus. And as and you open the onion, the atheist begins to cry, and our mission is accomplished. <laughs> Unless it's a blooming onion. And, That's right. That's right. But, uh, yeah, and so this is what you do. And it, and what I I like to do is ask them questions, sure. and then they help me open that onion up. Mm -hmm. And they hand me the rope and it's yeah. very easy to do. And sure. uh, that's yeah. it. Now, I hope folks who are listening don't get frustrated. My question originally was presuppositionalism and evangelism. But it, we, it's important to recognize that evangelism and apologetics are so closely linked together. Um, so I, I, I'm pretty sure that any of these gentlemen who when they're doing evangelism, they don't start with all of these things. Uh, I'm sure they start with the gospel. And depending on the context, they, uh, you know, will uh, engage in various objections. Or, or if there aren't many objections, they kind of take it another route. So um, just to throw that out there, it's not that uh, you're equating evangelism with apologetics, but they're very closely linked together. Um, Joshua, now uh, you are a musician. And, and, and uh, have you been to seminary at all? For like maybe two months, I was enrolled in Whitfield Theological okay. Seminary. Um, okay. 
with Greg Talbot, I think. Uh, but I, I have no formal education beyond that. After about a month, I was just like, I don't have time or the commitment to do it at that right. point. So now the reason why I asked that is because um, presuppositional apologetics, it sounds complicated when you say it, if someone kind of hears it for the first time, but it can be used by anyone. And so your background, you think of like, I'm a musician, yet because you have uh, studied the scriptures and you studied presuppositionalism, even with that kind of uh, that background that doesn't seem related to like, you know, I'm an apologist and I'm a musician. Well, you're a Christian, so you're an apologist, but you were able to, without even formal training, be able to put these principles in place. And I think that's excellent because uh, the apostle Peter commands us to all do apologetics. It doesn't matter if you're a scholar or you're a musician. So I think that that's pretty cool. So, so how about for you? So how do you incorporate uh, your presuppositionalism in evangelism? What does it look like when you have an opportunity to share your faith with someone? Well, surprisingly, I've only ever used the apologetic probably one time in person, and that was okay. with a former friend. Um, yeah. And it was very cordial, you know, and, and we left on good terms. And I, as Brian said, I stayed committed to the Christian worldview on the Bible as my foundation. But yeah. most of, or I guess the rest of my evangelism has been online. I'm, I'm very introverted. I'm very reclusive. I like being alone. Um, so I'm not going to be on <laughs> like the I'm really screen. nervous right now. There's just too many people in the screen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just like, I like the, I like being alone and in my thoughts and reading and writing music and whatever. Um, so you won't really find me on the street every weekend, you know, preaching the gospel or something, but, um, most of it has been online and just to piggyback off of what others have said, um, you just stand on the Christian worldview. You never waver from it. The Bible is your ultimate authority. It's your foundation by which you know everything else. Um, and so I've done most of my evangelizing online. And I'd be the first to tell you that I am I, I fail First Peter 3.15 so much because of just how snide I can get and my attitude and pride just creeps in. And I, I'm I'm just I'm so bad in that regard in terms of not following that commandment. Sure. Um, but yeah, in terms of applying presuppositionalism, it's basically just been all online mm. and following faithfully. Yeah, I, I did hear someone say that the uh, that the internet is the new mission field. Now, obviously, we yeah. don't want to exclude being face to face, but I mean, the reality is, if you're going to reach people with a message, the internet is just an amazing place to do that. And I've heard, yeah. I've experienced people because of watching a debate or because of watching an evangelism video or something that Cy or Anthony's put out or Matt or whoever, uh, that's actually, God has used that. So uh, yeah. that's not better or worse than doing it in person, but I think right. there's a good right. balance for us to, uh, to have there. Sure. All right. Now, just to, just to throw this out here, I'm not going to do this with all my questions where we go through one by one. After this, we're going to take a, a quick excursus to take some questions in the comments, and then we're going to reshift the conversation. It'll kind of be a little bit more free-flowing. So I just wanted to throw it out there. All right, Jimmy, uh, what about you? As a, as a pastor, how does presuppositionalism apply to the role of a pastor and how you do evangelism within the context that, that you're in? Yeah, um, for, for many years, um, pre-2020, uh, pre um, I would often be on college campuses, um, evangelism. So it actually, I feel more than any other apologetics, once I became committed to presuppositional apologetics, I felt my confidence in the Word of God has increased. Mm. And that actually allows me, um, I, I think practically, tactically, I just always share the gospel. Um, just just focus on that. I feel maybe the analogy is almost like um, 
Um, I, I was a prior Marine myself. Um, when a Marine goes in, they're not blowing up everything in sight. But then it's just as you're going along, if when you encounter a, a objections then you deal with at the hand but you're not wasting every, everything but at the same time you also know okay these, this is what you have in terms of your arsenal in, in Christ with precept so I think the other thing for me in the role of past, uh, pastoral and I know some of you guys are pastors here too um, even to multiply what we're trying to do because you know we could only live our life so long and I've benefited each from each one of you guys by the way online um, from Ooh. scene size video Anthony Rogers with your teaching on Old Testament Matt Slick when I was a young kid I remember messaging you used to be on AIM answering my questions you know choosing <laughs> hat with Brian Knapp and Josh you know even as humble as he is man he's he's a beast in yes, the uh, reform presuppositional apologetics group uh, sometimes <laughs> dealing with the objections and stuff so I think we want to multiply what we're doing is also I feel it's also an opportunity to disciple guys to say hey here are the ob objections but here's let's take a big macro level look at the worldview level of how do we deal with answers and objection uh, for discipleship I think that's probably going to be more later on some of your questions with that well excellent thank you for sharing that man and um, yeah I think the big picture is important because our ministry as Christians is not just apologetics. I think the beauty of, of presuppositionalism is that it is just a specific application of biblical truth to the realm of defense, but it is actually an all-encompassing thing. We are presuppositionalist in our marriage. We're presuppositionalist in the context of our church or how we interact with others, and we're presuppositionalist when we are applying it to, as Dr. Scott Oliphant has said, applying it to the realm of unbelief. It's one of my favorite definitions of apologetics. He says, uh, Scott Oliphant said, I don't know if it's original to him, but he said that a, a Christian apologetics is the application of Christian theology to unbelief. And I think that's just a beautiful way to, to sum it up there. All right, let's take a quick uh, excursus to take a couple of questions here. And uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. If anyone, I'm going to put it up on the screen. If anyone wants to take a stab at it, um, I'm just because some one person answers doesn't mean someone else can't add to it or maybe bring out something that might be helpful to the person who, who is asking it. So here's a question from Kayla Henderson. She asks, uh, what is the best way to answer an atheist who insists we've evolved to morality? So the idea that morality comes from evolution. Uh, so anyone could just jump in and uh, take a stab at it. I'll jump on it. Okay. Um, I think one thing to do is to realize that there is, in fact, some sense of morality um, that we could agree has evolved. In other words, people's subjective view of what's right and wrong changes over time. Um, but the existence of these individual subjective moral standards does not mean there's not an objective absolute standard. And at the end of the day, you have to ask the question, well, why should I follow that, um, that particular subjective standard? And the only real answer is with Christianity, which is an objective standard where you follow it because it's objective, right? Because it applies to everybody. That's, that's part of the definition. So I would just push back on them. And I know evidentialists and other, other types of apologists do this as well. You know, why, why should I follow your particular subjective standard? Hmm. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I would say actually there are no atheists. So um, I rarely get into the topic of morality with the unbeliever because what you're doing is you're granting them the ability to argue about morality. You're granting them the tools of logic and reason that belong to God. But if the argument happens to start on the topic of morality, I will say, well, what if one group evolved to have a certain type of morality and another group evolved to have a different type of morality? How do you de decide between the two? That mm -hmm. itself cannot be evolution. Like I would ask, is the uh, morality of killing Jews better than the morality of killing Jews? Mm -hmm. Or is it different? 
Now, to be a consistent atheist, you would have to say that that morality is just different, not better. Because when you say one morality is better than another compared to an absolute standard, and you can't have that without God. Mm, very good. Matt, did you want to say something? I saw you you were... Uh... Oh, yeah. I discuss the issue of morality with atheists all the time, and there's different ways to deal with it. Um, okay. In the context of evolutionary morality, I'd say, well, then, how do you know from your perspective? I'd do an internal critique. I'd say, how do you know from your perspective that morality uh, 100 years from now is the right morality, and it contradicts us today? Uh, if you have a system that ultimately can be self-refuting, then you can't have evolutionary morality be applicable in all situations. And I'll ask him, I'll say, is it true that statements are either true or false? You know, two plus two is four or five plus five is 38. And, you know, true and not true. And they'll say, yeah, the statements are are um, are true or false. You know, the, the law of excluded middle. And so I'll ask him, is this statement true or false? It is always morally wrong for anyone to torture babies to death merely for their personal pleasure. It's a standard question I've asked. I use it in my debate against Dan Barker, and he couldn't get out of the problem. But if the person were to say, yes, it's true, then he's asserting a universal moral absolute. But how can you do that in an evolutionary sense, since evolution does not necessitate any absolutes? If he says it's false, then he's defending the idea it's okay to torture babies to death merely for their personal pleasure, which means there's a moral absolute attached to that. How can they say that? So either way, they lose. What this is doing is showing that they cannot defend their position and that evolutionary morality uh, doesn't work. And besides that, it necessitates moral anti-realism, which we could talk about, because what must be in case for moral anti-realism to, to exist? And, you know, no God, no universals, no one in many. You have all these things, and you could just dismantle it. I sure. do this regularly on chat rooms with people, very slowly, with atheists. I ask them questions, lead them down a road, and uh, just show them that uh, you know, they're arguing themselves into a corner. And I say, now let me give you the truth is, if God exists, a Trinitarian God, and then go in and, and give them the mm. answer. Okay, thank you for that. Anybody else before we move to the next question? Yeah, here's one. Um, someone tell me how atoms theorize about themselves. I mean, how is it that you know atoms in motion somehow come to these theories of morality? You know, rocks don't have theories of morality or trees or anything, but humans do. So how does an atheist, you know, rectify that problem? We have consciousness, but now he has to explain that in terms of atoms in motion. So how does that work? Um, so, I mean, even the grand metaphysical picture, it's even just worse. How do you get atoms in motion to come to intelligible, you know, moral beings and then able to theorize about your own morality? You know, I deal with that when there are materialists and I ask them, are you a materialist? We then define it. So you believe the yeah. physical realm is all there is. Okay, well, then that means your physical brain is limited to the laws of physics and chemistry, right? Good. How does one chemical state that leads to another chemical state in the brain produce proper logical inference? And then whatever answer they give me, I just respond by saying, oh, your brain made you say that. <laughs> and from then on, you know, they don't have any way to go because they cannot demonstrate any universals from that sense and the truth values. Yeah. So materialism is the under thing and it, undergirding principle and materialism ultimately self-refuting because it casts doubt on its own validity. Okay. So, okay. All right. I use that argument with Clarkians. <laughs> don't open up that can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing that I throw in here is just the arbitrariness of the statement. I take it that the statement's elliptical. It means what is the best way to answer an atheist who insists we evolve to believe in morality or sure. believe that there's an objective morality? H how do we know that on the assumptions of the evolutionist? Uh, mm -hmm. Do we know that? I mean, is that something we know archaeologically? I mean, if we, for example, if we look at the uh, 
archaeology, the record of man, uh, what we find are dead bones and artifacts left over and so forth. Uh, you know, we might find evidence that people murdered somebody in the past, but that's not proof that they believed that murder was okay. It just mm -hmm. demonstrates the fact that somebody murdered. People murder today, right? But assume, you know, the, the, the question assumes that we've evolved to believe in morality today. So if we can murder today when we believe that there are objective moral norms against that sort of thing, then if we found evidence in the fossil record or something like that, that somebody was murdered, that wouldn't prove that they didn't believe it was wrong to murder. Sure. Uh, I mean, I just don't know how you, you can demonstrate this kind of claim that we evolved to believe in morality. In fact, all the evidence from uh, human history suggests that human beings have always believed that there's some moral standard. And usually when you do find somebody engaging in a murder or something like that or any other infraction of, of uh, accepted norms, uh, they're usually not suggesting that it's uh, that there is no objective standard, but that there's some special reason, right, why they could do that, why why this is not really a violation of that norm. Mm -hmm. so, uh, it's about at the end of the day, I think the question or the statement is just arbitrary. They don't live by their own philosophy because survival of the fittest would be the best moral system. That's right. I'll take you take what you what you have at at a gun. Yeah. Sorry, Slim Jim. No, that's cool. Yeah. On top of that, I think even the question already provides its own um, acid that blows itself up. If it's atheism, then the world came about by really chance. That is, there's not intentionality of a person directing. And if that's the case, it's like that. Van Til says the sea of chance. It's like um, the analogy I like to do oftentimes in campus evangelism is if you were to see a stop sign that landed in front of you when there was a big hurricane that blew it and it randomly by chance landed 90 degrees perfect would you actually stop and look both ways and obey that stop sign <laughs> now if it's, it came by chance even if there was the evolve even if there was a sign but the sea of chance itself destroy and reduces even the need for like it that. to be prescriptive and for us even to follow to obey to begin with so however sophisticated it is with the motto of evolution or whatever but by the very own metaphysics that it insists on an atheistic worldview where it's non-intentionality randomness and chance i think it actually is the asset that self-refutes or, or destroy the possibility, mm. meaningfulness, and intelligibility of morality. Mm. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, Brian, I want you to take this question. Maybe you could start with this question and then other people can chime in. Uh, I'll give you a nice hard one here. Uh, some, pre for, some preceptors say that we have to make an argument that is absolutely sure, and sometimes we'll say absolutely certain, not a probabilistic argument. They say that a probabilistic argument would give an excuse before God. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I understand what the question is. I mean, in the end, it's there is no excuse before God, um, regardless of the type of argument we, we make. I, I think what preceptors are saying is that it is most, most faithful to Scripture um, to argue for God as a certain, you know, existent being, because that's the way he presents himself. And given the nature of who God is, as our ultimate authority, as the one who created us, as the one that we ground intelligibility in in the first place. Um, it doesn't make sense. You know, I, I'm trying to remember how, how Van Til put, puts it, but essentially it's, it's an affront to God to say that he just most probably exists. So it, it's built into the pre-sub method itself to argue for a God that does exist, not wishy-washy general theism, um, not just some sort of a God or some sort of a being um, that has the ability to create or 
um, provide us with a moral standard. It's the entire Christian worldview. And what mm. comes along with that is that God does in fact exist and we know it and we can be sure of it. All we have mm. to do is look into scripture to find that. All right. Very good. And we, we would even argue that uh, it is the reality of the triune God of scripture that gives intelligibility to the very concept of probability. Uh, probabilities presuppose certainties and that certainty must be rooted in the God who created and uh, everything that occurs within creation falls out in accordance with his providential plan and purpose for everything that he's created. God is the metaphysical foundation for all derivational facts and how they behave. I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Thank you I'm for that. I don't know if anyone that. It looked like you were about to say it, but I was like, I was going to you know, say the same thing, almost word for word. I had it written right. down here. That's right. You are um, smart. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I learned from this guy named uh, the, the Slick Sai Anthony. <laughs> I, think I, I think I learned a little bit from everybody here. Um, all right. So let's um, I mean, there's so many questions, actually. I might just continue to go through here and then we'll we'll pop back out to, to jump into what I wanted to originally talk about. But there are a lot of questions here. This is good. Um, there's a question here by Arthur Bear, which I just removed from the screen. Um, this is in regards to metaphysics. OK, now, real quick. You might be some might be wondering, well, wait a minute, what's up with all this philosophy? Like, I get it, and I actually resonate very much with what Sai says that when we go down uh, too far the philosophical path, we can kind of lose focus on what's important. However, I do think as people are trying to understand presuppositionalism, these questions arise, and I still think that there is value in pursuing them as long as we don't um, take all of this philosophical talk and allow that to overpower really what we're supposed to be doing, which is proclaiming the gospel. So I do think that there needs to be a healthy balance there. For So for our purposes here, I think these are good questions to entertain. But for those listening and going out and using this, you want to have a balance there. It's about the gospel, not about all of this side stuff, but it's good to know it. And there's always a context in which it might become appropriate as well. Um, but here's the question, Arthur Bear. This is in regards to metaphysics. Yes, the Christian grounds his or her metaphysic in that it's been revealed by God. But if you guys could discuss why a person who also claims the same thing, why is that person wrong? So if someone has a revelatory metaphysic, my God has revealed the nature of reality. Now you have two asserted revealed metaphysics. How do we break the tie, so to speak? So that is an open question to anyone who wants to tackle it and anyone else can piggyback and chime in as well. Well, I've dealt with it many times. Okay. I just ask him, okay, so your God does this? Yes. Okay. Let's describe your God. Give me the attributes of your God. Let's go through. Is he omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent? He'll say yes, 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 yes. And then we'll get into the idea of defending the Trinity out of personhood and out of the static mind issue that I, I talk about and some other things. And I'll show that they have inconsistencies. A lot of times what happens is they'll actually describe the, the Trinitarian God. They just don't want to say he's a Trinity. And I'll say, mm -hmm. well, that's what we believe. And I won't go too deep. I'll say, that's what we believe. So how is it any different? So mm -hmm. you have to show a distinction and then they have to justify the distinction it gets a little mm. more tricky but that's all sure. i do and it takes five or ten minutes uh, you know going back and forth sure. and that's how we, we do that distinguish between them because if anybody's going to say it's the same attributes of god then it is god right but if it's a different attributes then we have to justify that those attributes are possible and then it gets down into unitarian sense and there's problems with unitarianism and then you get into that apologetic there okay great anyone else I find that it's often um, atheists who posit something like this in order to try and trip you up. So the first thing that I normally say is say, at least you're not an atheist. Yeah. 
You know, and I say, are you saying that you have to posit at least a God in order to make sense of these? And they're very reluctant to go that way because they're professing atheists. But um, I also stick to the truth that the Bible says they know the God. And so rather than getting into the philosophy of it, I say, well, there is only one God. And the Bible says that you know who that is. Mm. Very good. Anyone else? Yeah, I'll throw in that, number one, if you look at the world's religions, whether we're talking about ancient Greece, Rome, uh, the Nordic gods, whatever you want to talk about, in these systems, you either have something that's ultimate but impersonal, or you have personal beings, but they're not ultimate. I mean, that's just the way it's always shaken out in history. The only exceptions to that are in the context of what some would refer to as the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right? Obviously, I've already spoken to the fact that I reject any notion that Jews today are, in fact, worshiping the God of, of the Bible, and, uh, and as well uh, Muslims, but they are at least aping that. They're, they're, they're suggesting that this is the same deity. And so in one sense, I mean, just in terms of those claims, I mean, when we look at the world's religions, again, you don't have the notion of an absolute God in them unless you're talking about Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and all of them are laying claim to biblical revelation as the foundation for this. And so we need to get into the nuts and bolts of that to see really who really is being faithful to that revelation. Sure. Uh, but then here, just since I already broached one avenue of, of tackling this, I, I would point to the fact that these religions don't really teach the same conception of God. Their God created a world. It's like, to me, it always, just to give a very simplistic example, it's like somebody building a house, but building it in such a way that he's excluded from it, right? It's like, I don't know, he, he builds it and then uh, puts locks on it, but doesn't have the keys to the building. Yeah, uh, or, you know, uh, th that's just how Judaism and Islam sound to me on a very basic level. Okay. Their God made a world that he can't really interact with. Mm. And that being the case, I, I, you know, again, I don't know how they can talk about having a revelation from God, given the kind of God they're talking about. Mm. They, they say it's the biblical God who revealed himself, but their God can't reveal himself in principle since his transcendence precludes him also being imminent. So, yeah. Excellent. Um, I just want to put this quote up here. I think that's super cool. This one's for you, Cy. It's not a question, but how to answer the fool is part of, uh, because one says, how to answer the fool is part of my biblical ethics course that I teach to my high school students. Every year I get raving reviews from my students for the course. Cy has played a big part of that. So I think that's excellent. God is using that uh, in various contexts. They're an excellent teaching tool. So thank you so much for that. Hey. Praise God. I've um, been communicating with him in the uh, YouTube chat. He's a dear brother, and I hope to even maybe be able to join him at his church in the not-too-distant future. Awesome. Very he good. has a real name on there, so I won't use it, but uh, he's a dear brother, and I'm very humbled and encouraged by those words, and indeed, all glory goes to God. Mm. Now, I, you sound perfectly clear, Cy, but you're frozen. So I was like, wow, I didn't know he was a ventriloquist. He was like talking, but his lips weren't moving. <laughs> so I don't know if it's something with the camera there, but you, there you go. There you go. I was like, that's impressive. <laughs> He's like, I'm a boiler operator and a ventriloquist. <laughs> All right. Um, this one is for, uh, let's give this one to Jim and anyone else can chime in if, uh, if uh, there's more to say to this. So uh, Joel says, since the Bible is our ultimate authority, how can we effectively start from it if we don't have a, quote, perfect Bible? 
Statements of faith state only the originals as inspired when we don't have them. So how would we interact with that? It's a good question. That's a good question. Um, uh, I don't we know do if have I can it. answer. King James. I'm kidding. King James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I often get this question from King James only, so I was wondering if I were – sorry for cutting you off. Go on. No, you're right. Um, I see that often online. Um, among those that are within the camp of that consider some presuppositional, it becomes a whole discussion of is it King James or only majority text. Um, I don't think I, I have the time right now to answer everything in a few minutes, and I think some of the other brothers do. Um, online, I, I do have a series where I go over Old Testament textual criticism, uh, where I even had my kids in our church join in of just how how is it we piece in together, um, where I have them write things down. I, I bring in my own kids just because my kids could misspell things because I need some variants where there's mistakes. But then I have one of the guys go out of the room, and then when we come back, I have the one person that's out. Um, and then also in my church, it's multicultural. I have one guy in Spanish, another guy in Chinese. And then we have this where we bring it all together and people could still piece this grocery listing. I don't want to be too, go into this, too much details. I think number one, um, we do believe in light of the confessions, uh, the various ones. And as Christian, what the word of God says, that the word of God is self-evidencing. Um, and it is there. And, and I think the textual critical thing, there's nothing like it. Um, even for myself, when I like reading old um Eastern classical texts where there's a critical edition. Um, I think sometimes when you see just the amount of textual criticism there is uh, in terms of manuscript and families, I think it's amazing. Um, I think those that are pastors here would attest to that when you're preparing exegetically for your sermon when we do the textual criticism. Um, I always look at the variants just for my own preparation. Just incredible until you see how much it is. Again, I don't want to go too much into this thing, but I think the biggest thing God's word um, reveals that He will all his word, Isaiah 40 verse 8 his word is forever eternal so we do have this we can reconstruct it but also realize in different areas because of our sinful nature people might have some slipping of grammars and various issues um i think other sources i think anthony rogers has debated this with islamic context and i think matt slick has written quite a bit and even dealing with tackling um things i just want to just you know plug sure fellow yeah. brothers work. i think i think matt has a very and you can correct me if i'm wrong matt i think last time i checked you have a very big section in your website on your website on king james onlyism which touches on the whole textual critical issue yep i didn't write it though luke did luke, hey but it's on the site i mean it's, it's excellent. there yeah i had to give the imprimatur on it and so yeah it's good excellent that's right okay so this one is for josh i want josh can i throw some, one thing in on this oh, real go quick? for it go ahead yeah go for it so so one one way of thinking about this we say that the bible's our ultimate authority and without it a person has no foundation for their reasoning uh, the revelation of god right we, we believe the bible self-attesting but it's not just self-attesting in the sense that it claims that but that its content is self-attesting, meaning that if you reject the worldview revealed in the Bible, then you, in fact, leave yourself without any, uh, you know, grounds for your reasoning and, and everything else. And that being the case, I mean, we have the Christian worldview, even if, let's say, there's a textual variant, right? If, if I were to take the book of Philemon out of everybody's Bible, I don't think that it would fundamentally alter how any of you believe or go about living the Christian life or anything else. I'm not by any stretch suggesting that it doesn't belong in our Bible. It wasn't uh, supposed to be there or anything like that. I'm just saying it's not as if the, you know, there, there being a variant fundamentally affects the Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's because of the nature of the revelation that God has given. He, he's so 
revealed himself in his word in such a way that even with a variant, the, the truth is always still there. <clears throat> and, and one thing I'd say, just, just in terms of, uh, I think, comment was made about the Old Testament. One of the things that I found to be remarkable that I don't think a lot of people sufficiently are aware of or appreciate, at least with respect to the Old Testament, is if you were to take away all of the the Masoretic vowel pointings, which are post-Christian, okay, the Masoretic text from which our Old Testament is translated includes what are known as vowel pointings. Those are all put there by post-Christian Jews. That, that's not, you know, the, the, the prophets, Moses and the prophets didn't use vowel pointings. They, they simply wrote in consonants. And a person familiar with the Hebrew language would understand what vowels belong there. Uh, if you strip away some of those Masoretic vowel pointings, uh, many of the variants actually go away. Mm. And uh, so if you were to compare, I hope I'm not losing anyone, but if you were to take, let's say, a Masoretic text from today, which has the vowel pointings added by the Masoretes, and you took out those vowel pointings, the consonantal text that's there, and you compared that to, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have from before the time of the Masoretes, the uniformity there is remarkable. I mean, it's it's just it's incredible, and often the points of variant that arise from those vowel pointings it, it reflects an anti-messianic bias. Right. That's why you can look, for example, at the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament into Greek, right, uh, which was done before the time of Christ. You often find that the rendering of the Septuagint reflects a more messianic understanding of the Old Testament. Why? Because, you know, they were reading a different text? No, often it's because they're just looking at the consonantal text and reading it in the most natural way. You know, so, for example, uh, in uh, Psalm 22, it says they pierced my hands and my feet. Right. That was the way it was naturally understood as read by an ancient Jew. The, the Masoretes couldn't tolerate this sort of thing, so they would add vowel pointings that make it look like gibberish because they don't want yeah. it to say they pierced my hands and my feet. Okay? Mm -hmm. So. Bottom line is just that there's there's a great deal of, of uniformity across the manuscript tradition when you recognize something like this. Now, that doesn't mean there's all variants go away, but sure, I, sure. I do think you... Hey, Eli, can yeah. I jump in real quick? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just want to say that um, there, there seems to be an assumption that you have to have per perfection in order to have it be an authority. And I would say you don't. Um, even if it were a perfect text, we as humans are not perfect. So when we read the Bible, we're going to introduce a subjective element and we're not always going to read it exactly correctly. But we can say that because of the content of the Christian worldview, like Anthony mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. And this goes back even to the earlier question why you can't just argue that somebody else's God also revealed a worldview to them. You have to look at the content. What is the content of the Christian worldview? And that's what evangelism is, right? You're, you're sharing the gospel and you're sharing what's behind it. So I would I would say perfection is not a requirement for authority. Thank you Can for that. Yep, one last perfect. thing. Go for Sorry. it. Something to think I think, about I think you people. guys are going to have a good time with the next question, but go, go ahead. You finish this one up. And we'll, I'll let you guys uh, tackle our next one. I think you'll have fun with it. All right. Well, one of the things that to look at is the originals are inspired and they're, they're perfect because they're originals. And the copies aren't always perfect. Uh, 
but they don't have to be perfect. It's functionally similar to the translation of one language to another. So Greek into English or Spanish into English. They're, they don't have to always have perfect equity in everything, but yet because of the nature of inspiration inherent in the words by God's work in any language, even in the copy and transmission, we have what God has intended for us. Even though there's not an absolute perfect trans, uh, transmission, and that's a fact, but it's a 99.5% textually pure and identical. If you can look at that and say, well, that's not perfect, therefore you can't trust it, is the same thing as saying, well, you translate it from one language to another language, therefore you can't trust it. But that doesn't work. They have no problem with the translation issue, but that they do with the other, and that's an inconsistency on their part. Sure. Thank you for that. I hope you guys don't mind. I was going to go a certain route, but there are so many good questions that allow you guys to kind of share your different perspectives. So we're just going to go through them if that's okay. And towards the back end, I'm going to give each, each and every one of you an opportunity to briefly refute something that I'm going to present to you. So that'll be helpful. So someone can kind of see how does this apply here? How does this apply here? How does presupposition apply here? So we'll wait, we'll save that to the end. We'll give uh, precedence to the, uh, to the questions here. Excellent questions. Now I would like to start with Josh. Uh, if you can answer this question and then everyone else can kind of leap on it. First, I want Josh. And then I want Jim's more pastoral take on this sort of question when you're dealing it with it, dealing with it within the church, but then everyone else is free. Now, our next question is, feminism. Okay. So how does one use presuppos a presuppositional approach to engage feminism? So a lot of people will think like, yeah, okay. Presuppositional apologetics. It works cool when you're talking to an atheist, but what happens when you like, you're talking like a feminist and like the Bible comes up and you're kind of trying to interact with them and kind of share a biblical perspective. Um, because presuppositionalism applies to anything that we can speak about, how would you begin speaking with a feminist, Joshua, who takes certain positions that are are known uh, that feminists are known to be uh, known to take? If we can define feminism with the more negative connotation, I know there's a, a form of feminism that doesn't take that kind of extreme, and they kind of uh, the the bad feminists have hijacked the term, and so everyone gets lumped into that category. But how would you um, how would you deal with someone who comes from a very feministic perspective? Uh, you know. Uh, you, you know the sorts of things that they say. How would you engage that from a presuppositional perspective? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it would depend on what, what they mean by feminism. Okay. There have been like 5 million different types. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, it really just boils down to how they make sense of their arguments, whatever they may be, um, good or bad. I mean, if we go back 100 years and you want to call the good feminism, um, you know, the right to vote. Uh, just to ask, to get to the nerve of the point, how do you make sense of, you know, the act of voting? Or today it's like, you know, women's rights and abortion and stuff like that. Um, how do they make sense out of morality and their worldview? Or how do they make sense out of, um, you know, human dignity and, and reasoning and, and things like that, given their approach? Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't take long to just slice and dice their worldview because it, it really sure. is, it's not just morally depraved, but it's just irrational altogether yeah. just being anti-christian um i there's really not much more to it you just let them speak into the mic just yeah let them I, I like how you i like how you brought up the issue of ethics because a lot of these uh issues that feminists bring up with respect to women's rights and equality a lot of those are ethical issues yeah. and so we can we can actually use the standard presuppositional clip that has pretty much become a uh you know a meme by what standard if if women ought to be treated a certain way, what standard are you using? If the feminist claims to be Christian, then we use scripture. 
If the feminist claims to be atheistic, we can just keep on appealing to a standard that they don't have any objective foundation for. So I think that's a good connection to kind of bring that ethical issue in. Uh, how about you, uh, Jim? How would you address this in terms of um, teaching the people within your church how they could engage uh, with gentleness and respect, but with a, a presuppositional firmness on the issue of feminism? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I think first and foremost, because we are presuppositional, um, it is important to that we have a biblical view of male and female, of, of gender roles. Um, this will be mining a lot of Genesis 1 to 3 and everything even post-fall um, of various passages. I think for me, this is where, um, because this discussion is also about in the context of how presuppositional apologetics contribute, um, I know there's other various apologetics that emphasize natural law and even natural theology. Um, that's a whole different discussion about what, how is a reform view in, in, in using that look like. I'm not going to go into this too much, but I just want to point out that at least a crude version of natural law becomes a problem because um, there's actually, um, there's very, like Josh says so beautifully, there's various kinds of feminists. Everyone is individual. But I think the movement right now is there's been three different waves. And a third wave, feminism, is actually where we get transgenderism. I actually think it's the logical step when we say that if, in light of, um, I think I would recommend even Carl Truman's latest book about the rise and fall of the modern self, where he talks about because of technology, the discussion about what is human nature um, becomes very malleable. So I think for me, this is where the in rise of these new challenges that actually has given me more confidence to be presuppositional in the sense that our biggest argument is not just only from nature, but ultimately from what's God's intentionality for male and female and various genders is and interpret that in light of God's word. So I think first and foremost, at least for me pastorally, I would begin saying we got to begin with God's word. And again, to do uh, the precept thing, if, if not that, then by what standard? you go by and then we critique from is it the individual um and various things and even the problem of subjective morality or if it's just only merely social convention um etc i think the other aspect i think is also um i think is important this is more the pastoral element is important for all of us to live it out um especially as our world gets more darker um you know christian sexual ethic is very important that we model that in terms of abstinence when we're single before we're married and when we're married just chastity and even love I, I also think um i know sometimes you hear people say the cliche love is an apologetic um but even then the love must be interpreted in light of biblical lens god's way of what love true love is etc but nevertheless i think it presents a real challenge to unbelieving worldview when they see it actually modeled within the family so mm. i think those are the four points if i just summarize number one is just point out the nature versus um technology tension that they have and also even taking to this logical conclusion this third wave feminism where we're at where if it's all fluid then we have this uh, incredible thing where women actual women are actually being at risk when you have things like you could define whatever you want and then to have people that were formerly male born male in female prisons and just the fruit of that ideology is where we don't want to go also pointing that out all right excellent thank you for that excellent. i think a good place uh, perhaps to start the argument is with the question uh, so why do you hate god hmm I like that's, that. that's an interesting route, man, because I've seen you use that before, and it definitely moves the discussion right where it, it needs to be. It cuts through a lot of the nonsense, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, they, they might deny it, but then, you know, you could point out, uh, you know, by the what their beliefs and what they state, how it's actually a, an affront towards God. But, of course, you do this with love, mind you. But um, I, I find, and one of the reasons that I that I uh, use that approach is I remember, I think I shared this with you, Eli, once, but I was out evangelizing mm -hmm. the park. 
and I heard this guy, he was doing pre-sup and he'd learned stuff from me. I was talking with this guy for about half an hour using all the philosophical arguments and it made me want to puke because he sounded just like I sound. And then he was kind of running into trouble with these philosophical arguments. And he called me over and he said, you know, Sai, you know, I'm having some trouble with this fellow here. And my question to him was, so, sir, why do you hate God? And of course, he said I, he didn't hate God. But then it, the, the conversation took a whole new direction. And that's also, I believe, on my website on the audio section um, sure. where we have that conversation. But um, it, it does sound kind of, um, you know, like, in your face but if if you can do that you know that's one of the things about being in person too that you can look in the person's eyes and um you know i was going to mention that to uh, joshua earlier as well he says that a lot of these conversations he does online one thing that i found that the difference between doing it in person and online is online uh, online is far too easy to duck questions you know because you could ask a killer question and then they don't respond for a day or two. <laughs> That's right. But when you're when you're face to face with the person, you ask that person. If you say to a person online, "So why do you hate God?" They don't have to respond to that. You mm -hmm. don't look in their eyes. But when you if you can do that in person with love, and of course there is a place. I mean, I cut my teeth with all these arguments online, but I ended up not really becoming frustrated. But it it, it was. Um, it was, it was an annoyance that people just would avoid questions. And yeah. of course, you know, they're, they're stewing um, while they've avoided this question and they've done it for a reason as well. But it just, uh, you know, conversationally, I think that face-to-face, uh, -face, it's much harder for them to avoid the questions that you ask. Mm. They don't have time to evade and, you know, think behind the right. keyboard before they're coming up I, with an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts, Brian, on that? You want to add anything to that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, over the last week or so, I've been having a discussion with a Christian lady who's a friend of mine regarding a right to abortion, women's mm. right. Um, and we went back and forth a little bit, and I just tried to understand, you know, just ask some of the basic questions. Is the unborn child human, you know? And then uh, after about two iterations, I said, so, you know, you keep using this term right. We have a right to do this. We have a right to do that. Where does that right come from, do you think? And at that point, I said, I believe, you know, God gives us rights um, by virtue of being image bearers and went through and explained the biblical perspective on on, um, on children and, and that. And she came back and said, the answer to the question, where do rights come from? She said, well, they just are. So they're just that way. Yeah, huh? They just are. And so I thought, you know, there's a million different ways to respond to this, but I, I just came back and said, well, what if I said, you know, I have the right to make sure that no, no unborn children are killed. And if you ask me where that comes from, I say, it's just my right. The idea was to show the total arbitrariness of, of that kind of a position. Excellent. Um, I so, usually, add, I usually add, how do you like your argument now? <laughs> That's right. So well, I think yeah. listening to the question and looking for what, you know, from a Christian biblical perspective, what is it they're assuming that's not consistent with scripture? And just dig down, drive down on that and, and be sure to share the biblical perspective, you know, Bonson and Van Til both talk about the two-step approach. So here's my answer if Christianity is true. And, and even though she says she's a Christian, and I believe she is, she's not holding a Christian position, a biblical Christian position. 
Excellent. Uh, just a word to the uh, listeners here. If you guys are enjoying this conversation, I sure am. I love to hear the answers of each of these gentlemen. They're doing a great job. Uh, if you're finding this useful, uh, you know, do me a solid. Like the video, share the video as well. If you think there are other people who might benefit from this conversation, I think the fact that we're covering such a wide variety of topics um, really gets to allow people to see how presuppositionalism can really be applied to everything, um, even to feminism, interestingly enough. So um, um, if you do that, that'd be greatly appreciated. Now, here's a question. It's really hard, and it's for Anthony Rogers, okay? Uh, what do you say? I and mean, you can get kind of a brief, succinct answer to this, because this comes up a lot. What do you say to a Muslim who tells you we worship the same God? To the Muslim, it's Allah, and for the Christian, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how would you respond to that? You're on mute. Uh, I think your mic is off. He probably yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gave the best answer he ever gave, and he's the we can't hear. <laughs> well, I, I gave a short answer, which is no, we don't. And okay. The long answer is the Quran is adamant that the God of the Bible is not triune. In fact, when ref, you know attempting to refute the idea that God is triune, it doesn't even get the Trinity right. So on top of not being triune, the God of Islam is ignorant. Right. He, he rejects what the Bible reveals about God and in the process miscasts it. So, you know, what kind of a God is that? It's certainly not the God I worship. Sure. And, you know, again, I mean, the Quran now you have to distinguish between what the Quran claims it's doing and what it actually is doing. It, it makes the claim that it's speaking from the same God, but in the course of it ends up saying things that are decidedly contrary to what God says sure. in scripture. Uh, one easy example. I mean, the, the, the God we believe in sent his son into the world and he, he sent his son into the world to die for our sins. Surah 4, 157 of the Quran says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. And that fundamentally affects everything that we believe as Christians. And it, it ends up revealing a very different God than the God of scripture. Sure. Uh, one example, I mean, just thinking of the love of God, for example, if we just talk, want to talk about attributes, Scripture speaks of God loving his enemies. That's what was happening when he sent Christ to die for his people. He was dying for his enemies. There's no such notion in the Quran. Allah doesn't love anyone except those who have allegedly earned or merited his love. Mm -hmm. And again, that's just not the God of, of Scripture. So would we also say also that Islam, the, uh, Allah, if we were to say, are they the same? Well, in order to be the same, there needs to be a one-to-one -one correspondence between what Christians believe about God and what Muslims believe about God. And ontologically, we believe in a triune God, which is completely not a one-to-one -one correspondence to what uh, Muslims believe. So you can't worship a Trinitarian God. And then another group worship a Unitarian God and say they're the same God, even though they are robed within the context of similar stories like, you know, uh, God revealing himself to Abraham and these sorts of things. But would that be correct? Yeah, yeah. And one thing to remember, you know, look at John 8. I alluded to this earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus did not speak to his Jewish contemporaries as though they were worshiping the same God. He did not believe that, that God was their father in that fundamental sense that is all important. Right. right. They weren't worshiping that God. Jesus said their father is the devil. Right. So sure, those Jews would have said we're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus said, no, you aren't. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Matt, For those go ahead. I'm sorry. Go on, Matt. 
Oh, one of the things I like to do with the Muslims is say, yeah, this, you know, your God is true. Yeah. Is the Old Testament true? Did Abraham talk to the true God? Yes. Well, the word Yahweh is used 6,517 times in the Old Testament where God says, I am. That's his name. I just ask him, well, if you have the same God, how come your God doesn't identify himself? Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't call himself the I am. Why is it that in all of the Quran, he does not do that? Explain that. So what I'm doing is putting him on the spot and showing at the same time they're not the same one. Okay. Okay. Side, do you want to add to that? Who are familiar with my work, you'll know that I very, I'm very reluctant to call an atheist an actual atheist. I call them professed atheists. Hmm. I, um, I characterize, um, you know, they're what they call themselves. They're not really atheists. They're professed atheists. Somebody called me on this years ago and they say, well, aren't the Muslims an actual professed Muslim? And they're exactly right. We have no problem saying professed atheists, but we don't say professed Muslims because according to the God of the Bible, according to these Muslims know the God, but they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But I very rarely, if ever, do I hear people address them that way. And I was uh, talking with a, a man who was a missionary in Ghana, and he's actually in Brazil now. He'd found you know, this uh, apologetic online through some videos, and he was so excited. The next day, he went to the place where they buy water in Ghana, and it's always surrounded by Muslims. And the first thing he said to them is, your Quran is false, and you know it. Mm. He said some of them got very angry with him. Some of them laughed. He said one man came up to him and he quietly said, can you tell me more about Jesus? Mm. That's what we have to uh, emphasize. That this is a reformed apologetic. And there's two types of people in the world. There's goats and there's sheep. Goats who will spend an eternity in hell and sheep who will spend an eternity in heaven. And one thing that the Bible does not say is that goats become sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. So we give them sheep food. And according to the Bible, the Muslim knows the true God, but they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I think we have to take that approach more often that just like they're professed atheists, they're also professed Muslims. Mm. All right. Our next question is going to be for Matt and Brian uh, only so that we can kind of move through them and then we'll kind of group some other guys to answer some other questions. You guys are doing an excellent job, by the way. Um, and even I'm learning some stuff too. So excellent, excellent job. Uh, here's the question. Uh, someone says, I don't believe the Bible was written by God, just men. And you say, what do you say, Matt? Well, there's lots of things I could say. <laughs> I could do this, but it doesn't work. Say, <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, how about that? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> then we're done. I said, well, why do you believe that? Whenever anybody makes an assertion, I like to say, de demonstrate that the assert assertion is valid. I want to hear them. I call it handing me rope. I'm going to hang them with it. Because they don't serve the true living God, because they deny the true living God, then ultimately anything they say must end in self-refutation and self-contradiction, period. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I just say, okay, let's work with it. And I have a reputation, believe it or not, of being very patient, step-by-step, step, very uh, slow going through with people, writing things, what they say, and saying, look, I'm going to try and trap you right now. Is that okay <laughs> if I try and do this? And they'll say, yeah, go ahead. And they, even atheists will say, I enjoy talking to you. And I'll say, okay, well, if you, if you say this, you said this, you said that. Now, how do they both work? So, there's, you know, a lot of it is art and just getting down there and, and yeah. dealing, dealing with it. But if they say, well, how do you know it's the word of God? And I say, I could say something as as uh, tough as, well, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. Mm -hmm. And so we know it's the voice of God because we're his sheep. All, right. All I'm doing is presupposing the truth of God's word. I'm not defending it, though I can, because there's ways to do that. 
And sometimes I do that in a large room and I'll share information and a lot of people are listening and then that's why I'll use it as a, as a teaching tool. But that's what I'll mainly do. Jesus said that and that's why. Mm. Are you disagreeing with Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. How about you, Brian? How would you speak to that? I would say, why do you hate God? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I knew I'd get a thumbs up from Cy. Well um, played. Well played there, Ryan. This is, this is really tough because it's extremely much out of context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, a couple things. If somebody says, if somebody makes the assertion, you know, it was just men that wrote the Bible. God wasn't involved, right? So they they've made a they made a claim that something is true, sure. Some, something about the Bible itself. At which point I would I would drive and say, well, let's talk about that. Um, if somebody says I don't believe the Bible was written by God, so what they're stating is a belief they hold. They're not their their claim is about the belief they hold, not the content of that mm-hmm. belief so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say, well, I believe God inspired. You know, in other words, I would counter with my own belief in the hopes that it would lead to something more than just saying, I believe this, I believe that. Um, and it, at that point, again, it really depends on, you know, the opportunity that I, that I may have to continue that conversation. Um, there's so many, so many things it depends on, but um, I don't, I don't know that I would just come right out and, and try to hammer them over the head per se. I, I want to develop the conversation a little bit more with them. All right. Excellent. That's, that's helpful. Um, this, this question is for Josh and, uh, and Jimmy. Okay. Um, here is a question from Reginald to say that God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility, causal connections, etc., just raises the question as to why. Precepts then just reassert the claim to support it. Now, there are so many different things that are wrong with this assertion, um, but let's address it. Um, is that what we do, Joshua? Are we just saying God is the necessary precondition? And when someone says, well, why is that the case? And we just kind of just repeat ourselves. We kind of, we had a little string. We just have like little cool Seitan Kate phrases that we learn from watching uh, Answer the Fool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, how do you know God's the necessary precondition? Why do you hate God? Why do you hate God? <laughs> Let me go through my flashcards and uh, you know get the answer <laughs> That's there. Right. That's right. Um, so how would you address uh, that question? I, I've never seen uh, presuppositionalists just reassert the claim. I think what they mean is they reinforce the claim um, mm-hmm. by elaborating theologically, expositionally from Scripture. Um, the metaphysical truths of God. Why is it that God makes sense of this or this or this or whatever? Um, and then we appeal to scripture, his word, and we lay out the metaphysical picture of the Christian worldview as to why that's the case. Um, and then if he objects to that, then we'll just keep the conversation going. But it's at base, it's not just a reassertion of the same claim. We uh, elaborate on it. We explain this is our worldview. This is how we can make sense out of these sort of these preconditions. Uh, well, now, how do you make sense out of these preconditions? And then that's when the conversation just keeps going. So it's not just a reassertion. It's more of a reinforcing, and the two are not the same. Mm. Okay, excellent. Um, Jimmy, you want, you want to share your thoughts there? Yeah, uh, beautifully stated. Um, you know, I, I do appreciate Josh, you know, with all that you've written online in, dis- in some of these philosophical discussions um, and even others. I think the first part I, I want to go even with this question is even um, – 
if they're even understanding in light of this question, what do we mean by precondition? Mm -hmm. um, what we mean by precondition, maybe another word of saying it is, what is the prerequisite for any object of human experience, whether causality or whatever else? Um, what must be true ahead of time in order for this truth, X or whatever you call it, must be the case? So I think in light of this, um, I want to first mention about like the nature of proving things in, in terms of precondition, we, another way of phrasing it is transcendentally. The, its very nature of that might not be the same way as perhaps some direct uh, claims with certain things. If I could give an example, the laws of logic is a precondition for even rational discourse, right? You're assuming the laws of identity, laws of non-contradiction. But when someone comes up to you and say, I don't believe in the laws of non-contradiction, um, you don't prove it by assuming it's not true you're just saying no it's true but showing if this is the case what does it look like if you want to totally reject it so the nature of that um i think if that could be an analogy is i think that's yeah. what is what, what we're doing is there's a two-step process that at least with van Til, um is trying to do is um is saying okay this is what we, we we're it's self-evidencingly true, but if you reject it, let's look like in your worldview step in, what does it look like? Mm -hmm. um, real quick question, I think precept, we're not actually doing just only merely asserting. I think what we're having is the confusion maybe, is we're talking about a whole worldview. Um, sometimes people ask if it's whether or not it's circular. I like to often mention as an analogy of a circuit board. A circuit board, in order for it to work, it must be circular where it's connected to the battery. Um, if it's totally straight line, then obviously there's no power. Or if it's not collect, uh, connected, that's like a, you know analogy of arbitrariness, then it, it's also a problem. So I think what we're showing is when we're having this discussion, we're trying to show that the whole thing is a biblical view of ontology of God, a biblical view of ethics, and a biblical epistemology, and showing, hey, this whole thing is robust and cogent and coherent, that it is the only thing in light of the triune God and what he's revealed in Scripture that could explain things. But everything else in their worldview, they don't have the battery to even support the circuit and their wiring is all messed up and everything else because of 1 Corinthians 1, if those that reject, where's the debater of this age? Hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Uh, post tenor bus. If we, go ahead. If we, if we say in scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And somebody says, why? You know, we say, well, that's just the way it is. God says that he's the beginning of knowledge. And if you reject it, your worldview is reduced to absurdity. But the question isn't really why. I mean, when somebody says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and they ask why, well, that's what the Bible says. Yeah. God is the beginning of knowledge. And if you reject that, you can't make sense of any knowledge claim that you make. But so, that uh, second part right there, Sai, is the answer to the question. It, it, the second part you just gave is the reason why we're not simply asserting. It's not just a bare assertion. No, that's fair. Right. The proof of it is what you just said. Reject right. it and look what happens. Yeah. I, I don't think that's really an answer to the why question. I think it's just okay. this stating fact and um, okay. you know justifying with scripture because um, it is the case that God is a necessary precondition for knowledge. Why? Why is that the case? Well, in, you know, in a way, yeah, because you can't make sense of anything unless you start there. Sure, sure. All right. Uh, Post Tenebrous looks, um, uh, asked the question, is it true that you can be a precept and also an evidentialist? If you guys don't mind, I'd like to jump on this one here. Um, the answer to that is, is no. Um, you can't be a presuppositionalist and an evidentialist. Now, we need to make a distinction between um, presuppositionalism as a methodology and the utilization of evidences. So when a presuppositionalist uses evidences, he's not ceasing to be presuppositional, or we use evidences within a consistent presuppositional framework. We cannot be presuppositional or presuppositionalists and also employ a completely different 
um, apologetic method that's based on a different foundation. So you cannot be an, you know, for example, I had Hugh Ross on, uh, maybe many people might know who Hugh Ross is. And we had a great discussion about creation and stuff, but he actually wrote an article on his website and he actually told me in conversation, he said, well, you know, I think presuppositional apologetics is a good thing to have in your tool belt, but sometimes you need to use evidential apologetics. And sometimes he talks about the practical um, use of using these different methods when in fact you can't use consistently different methods. You have to use evidences that is in, in a way that's consistent with the method you're, you're working from. So um, no, you can't be a presuppositionalist and an evidentialist but that's not to say that you can't use evidences as a presuppositionalist. I hope that that makes sense. If anyone wants to add to that, uh, feel free to. Jesus used evidence. Right. He said to Thomas, John 10, 27, he says, take your finger, put it in my hands, take your hand, put it into my side. Now, you see, he goes, now be not unbelieving, but believe. So Jesus used evidence in support of the necessity of belief. Right. Well, to that, I normally say to the person, I say, if you can do miracles, go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and on top of that, even then, I think for precept, we're about the philosophy of evidence that interprets all that. So with the, in, in light of, of the Old Testament view, what Matt Slick provides a scenario that even sometimes evidentialists bring up. I would also even say that metaphysically, what makes that possible is in light of Proverbs, the eyes that see and the ears that hear is the Lord that has made it. It's not a randomness of chance. I mean, if that's the case, that's almost, if all our senses is randomness of chance in an atheistic worldview, you're nothing more than playing with dice, right? You just happen to say, hey, I wonder what's two plus two. Is it four? And you just answer it by rolling a dice. And you would say you would not truly have knowledge, a justified true belief, if it's all the randomness, but it's God that's made all the senses. I think in terms of evidence, I actually think the presuppositional view um, makes better sense, and it's much more conscious to be faithful of God. The core, I, I like what Matt Slick gave the analogy. Um, like it's a bunch of onion. At the very core, we cannot comprehend the fear of the Lord. What Matt Slick is driving is that we cannot ever question that that it is Christ uh, and the truth of the Christianity. Mm. And all facts do not exist independent of any of other context. So the fact of Christ's resurrection is because of prophecy, his deity, his self-proclamation of resurrection, etc. So I always like to tell people, if you have a fact you want to justify as something, as an evidence, that's fine. I don't have any problem using evidence, but I'm going to put it in the overall context, which requires a presuppositional worldview. You get into that and the consistency. So absolutely. Yep. This is a great question here, and this comes up a lot. And I'm, I'm a, unfortunately, I'm a teacher and I can't answer this question uh, because it, it does pop up a lot when people are interested in presuppositionalism and they want to teach it to younger people. Uh, Eric says, I'm a ninth grade Sunday school teacher for my 11th plus young men and women. I'm a Reformed Calvinist and have been studying precept for about a year. The church is led by a pre-mill Arminian. It says Armenian, but pre-mill Arminian. <laughs> is there a curriculum you all would recommend for my ninth graders? God bless you men, and thank you for doing this. If anyone wants to speak to that, or maybe or maybe not a curriculum, but a resource that might be helpful for younger people. Um, if you have any ideas, shoot it out. If not, we apologize, Eric, and we need to move on. <laughs> How to answer the fool. How to answer the fool. Well, you, hey, yeah, that's a great. I mean, what, here's a, I'm glad you actually said that because how to answer a fool is, is video. Sometimes seeing visuals and like how this looks like in conversation 
is one of the best ways you can um, you can teach young people because people in our generation today are very visual. And to actually see what it looks like to defend the faith using this method, I think, um, you know, a teacher can show those videos and show clips and and create conversation based on, you know, what is what is Sai doing in this video? What, what Why does he ask the question that he asks and have discussions? You can use that even if you don't have kind of a spiral notebook with a curriculum, you know, from this day to that day, all the way till you get to the end. So that's a, that's a good, good recommendation. How to answer the fool. Anyone else? Okay. All right. Um, so here's a question thrown out to everyone. This is from the sire. Uh, what or the fake Greg Bonson, as many people know him. Uh, what would you say about someone that denies anything is right or wrong? So, so, you know, we say by what standard, the person's just like, there, there's no such thing as right and wrong. So ha, take that presuppositionalist. How would you respond to that? You should watch the Stein debate where Bonson says, he pulls out a gun and says, okay, Dr. Stein, make my day. Is there a God or not? And then he, now he has them where he wants them because if he says, "Oh, you can't shoot me because um, there, are, you know, there are moral absolutes," that's wrong. Then Bonson wins the debate because he's proven God exists. There are moral absolutes. But if he says, "Oh no, there are no moral absolutes. There's really nothing right or wrong," then he shoots him and he dies and he wins the debate anyway. <laughs> so it's just absurd. Okay. All right. I Thank you for that. I can also point out that 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 person is not living their life consistently with yeah. that particular position, and that's a big part of precept is is to talk about, you know, the problem with being inconsistent. It's not just that you don't have your, your ducks in a row per se. It's that you're not living what you say you are living. Or if it were the case that there were no rights or wrongs, then this, you know, you getting morally indignant about this particular thing that bothers you, you know, there's no reason to do that. So I think you can quickly drive them to an irrational position. Mm. If they go to keep my website they i address some of those contradictions but i mean you could just simply say, is it right that there are no rights or wrongs you know it's just, it's just a self-contradiction on the face of it but if they go to my website proof they got exist.org you know there's a point and click thing that deals with these type of contradictions hmm. all right thank you for that. one of the things i'll do is i'll just ask them um i i enjoy the discussions so uh what must be the case uh such that there is no universal moral ought because that's what they're saying they deny a universal moral law. Okay, what must be in place in order for that to be the case? If you can't produce such a worldview and justify it, then your assertion is unfounded. What I'll do is I'll, I'll do this kind of a thing with a room full of people. I want them to hear the futility of that statement. And then when they're giving me more rope, nail them all the more. But mm -hmm. this is that what condition must be the case in order for their statement to be true. And it's just one of the basic things I do. And it's very powerful, very effective. And then you find out or they'll find out that their statement is just basically arbitrary and doesn't work in self-refuting and then say, now let me introduce you to the absolutes found in the Trinitarian God. Hmm. All right. Very good. Sire, uh, the sire also asked the question. Um, I think this is a fun, this might be fun uh, or it might be boring if we all agree. Where do any of you differ? on presuppositionalism. So um, we all agree that uh, our foundation as presuppositionalists are the same. And we would uh, basically use uh, in some context, a kind of or sort of transcendental uh, form of reasoning. Uh, but is there anything that any of you like to emphasize a little more than the other person, or maybe you have slight differences, or maybe someone secretly is a presuppositionalist of the more yeah. Ramian flavor or Clarkian flavor? Uh, anybody well, want to give that one a shot? Well, Sai just asks, why do you hate God? <laughs> I like to, 
I like to get involved in the conversation. And, I'm a Clark and, here. Why do you hate God? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we hate God. It's like a, so uh, I think people think Sai's a brilliant apologist. He just knows one question. <laughs> Why do you hate God? And he just, he, he, that's it. But uh, no, I would just say that, uh, you know, there, there's a difference there, you know, and we have certain emphases and certain uh, talents and, and stuff. I like to do stuff, believe it or not, for the benefit of the crowd listening. And uh, so I like to go into more particulars a little bit and give it, be more, a little bit more consistent because not everybody likes the answer, why do you hate God? Not that it's not a good one, sure. but, uh, but to go into that, you know, with just different, different strengths and weaknesses. Sure. Sure. And now, now this is an interesting question. Um, how should I respond to the objection that because of my schizophrenia, I can't trust my own perceptions that contradicts the belief that I could know reason and logic for certain because of God's image? How should I respond to the objection that because of my schizophrenia, I can't trust my own perceptions that contradicts the belief that I can know reason and logic for certain because of God's image? Not sure if the question makes sense, yep. but uh, yep. if you can kind of jive with what he's asking uh, or she's asking, um, how would you interact with schizophrenia and the issue of certainty and logic and reason? Well, I would start saying the reality of God's existence and logic is not dependent on whether or not you have schizophrenia or do not have schizophrenia. Mm. And so you need to understand that the truth of this statement presupposes the universality of the laws of logic, which is independent of what you are. Therefore you can know truth, even though your schizophrenia might get in the way of, of, um, of really accepting and believing it. And so what I would do is try and set a pattern apart from their schizophrenia of the universality, the universals that are there and argue from that position. Hmm. That's one, okay. one of the ways. Anybody else? Um, I, I think I'll jump in real quick. Um, okay. Just with our church, we do have a high. Uh, I go to a small church, and I think this video I'll probably share with some of our guys. Um, we yeah. do have a high population of those with um, mental disability and, and various challenges. Um, pastorally, with those that are schizophrenic, mm -hmm. I often mention that um, even just this question presupposed that we're in a fall, fallen, sinful world. So. Genesis, I think empirically, um, sin is very real and the brokenness in our world. And it really fits in with the gloves of scripture as a, interpreting all this. So even with that, I often pastorally just mention that all of us, um, even believers that people would say is right in the head, quote unquote, like socially speaking, relatively in that uh, cultural or, or social context, even then we often have various challenges of, of things that we don't believe correctly about ourselves. We could be prideful. We could be um, assume our capability higher. Um, so I think in light of this, the commonality uh, of everyone with or without schizophrenic is we live in a fallen world. And in light of a fallen world, um, I often will try to emphasize pastorally, this is where we got to hold to the gospel. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, I do think in light of even this question, when the reality and what's not reality is something that goes back and forth easily. Um, I also want to say God's common grace besides the word of God is also sometimes often the community within um, the church also as well. Um, that we're there, that we're also sounding board for what's their view of various people or things that they want to do or, or things. I think this is where um, God's common grace is the word and also with the fellowship that's all based upon um, a biblical worldview. Mm, excellent. Thank you so much for that. That's a that's interesting because that's a difficult question to kind of address. I mean, we don't really think of mental disorders and how we kind of 
interact with that from an apologetics uh, perspective. So thank you for that. Uh, Scott Terry, thank you so much for your $10 super chat. Uh, Scott asks, seems there's a huge divide between pop presuppositionalist and academic Vantillianism. If so, why and how do we... Uh, why and how do we work on bridging the gap? Joshua, why don't you take that question? I think you're very familiar with uh, the more academic side of Vantillianism. And of course, you've interacted with what we typically see, you know, online and things like that. Yeah, I, I have seen this firsthand online. It's nothing belligerent mm -hmm. in any sort of way, but there is definitely a divide between what you would see precept used on the street as opposed to in some sort of formal educational institution or whatever. Um, the divide would obviously be from the intellectual aspect of it. Um, if I'm going to witness to my neighbor, I'm not going to go into some sort of big Kantian transcendental sort of exposition and how Van Til drew from Kant. I mean, he's not going to know any of that. Um, but at the same time, that stuff is crucial because that's where Van Til derived his apologetic from. Uh, and so in terms of bridging the gap, I mean, it's really just a matter of context and focus. I mean, not everyone is called to be an academic. And, not, uh, and so that doesn't detract from people witnessing on the street presuppositionally. And if you're more academically inclined, that doesn't give you the right to just attack those who are not as academic as you are in terms of Van Til's apologetic. Um, because at the end of the day, we're still trying to accomplish the same thing, which is to witness right. to a lost world. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's basically just what I would say. Okay. Now, Anthony, uh, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Do you want to add to that? Well, not if you're about to ask me a different question. <laughs> no, I, well, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, I, I think one thing that might be involved in this question is the difference between somebody merely saying, you know, God exists, you know, the Bible is his word and what Van Til would do and actually, you know, actually demonstrate that, right? He, he would actually, he's not just making a claim. And that's often what some people think is going on when presuppositionalists are doing this sort of thing on a street level, right? We're just asserting over and over again, you know, God, you're without excuse. We might say that, right? But that's more or less, at least for me, to provoke a discussion. It's sort of like, that's what I think what Sai is doing when Sai says something like, why do you hate God? I don't think he just plans to say you hate God and then, you know, walk away or something like that. <laughs> He's trying to push the discussion along sure, to, sure. to some degree. Maybe he would be more short than somebody else. You know, Matt has mentioned that he likes to, you know, get into larger discussions. But uh, I think that might be part of the thing. And uh, I remember years ago, it was interesting if uh, you guys have probably all read or certainly are aware of, maybe you didn't waste your time on, but uh, Dawkins book, right? The, the God delusion. <laughs> and I remember it was interesting in that book. He actually makes the claim that people are really atheists underneath. They know that there is no God. And, and that sounds like what presuppositionalists are saying, right? He's, it's almost like he's reversing the claim. He's saying, right. no, you really know in your heart of hearts, there is no God. Well, when Paul makes that statement in Romans 1, uh, and, he, and he says that this is foolish, he then goes on to talk about, among other things, the fact that God, as a judicial response to this, delivers people over to their foolishness. And so, for example, those who exchange the glory of the incorruptible God to worship that which is not God, it says that God, as a punishment for this, gives man over to his own depraved heart, right? To do things that shame himself, 
right? He, uh, he gives man over to exchange the natural desire for the woman, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Well, what's interesting, and I just, you know, this, the, more could be said about this, but I, I found it extremely interesting that as you're reading Dawkins' book, guess what Dawkins actually chooses to spend time defending in his book on atheism? What's that? He's defending, you know, homosexuality right. in the book. And, and so, but, but here's the point, right? It, Paul's talking about, he's talking about people suppressing the truth. And as a consequence of this, God gives them over to foolishness in their, you know, interactions with one another. And here's Dawkins trying to claim that people in their heart of hearts are, are atheists. He can't do something similar and say, you know, uh, there's no teeth to what he's saying, right? He can't prove that the Christian is presupposing atheism, right? When I when I say it's wrong to murder your neighbor or take his car, how's how's he even going to begin to try and prove that I'm presupposing atheism, right? But then in his very book, he actually argues that hand in hand with atheism is this idea of you know uh, sexual perversion you know, which Paul says is part of the proof sure. that, you know, God has uh, given people over to foolishness. I, mm. I just found it somewhat, uh, I mean, there's there's a more sophisticated, robust observation that can be made concerning this, but certainly people ought to at least scratch their head and say, where, why in the world does he suddenly start go, breaking out defending this when, in a book that's about atheism? Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Now, here's a question for everyone, uh, and you can kind of uh, chime in. Anyone could randomly chime in here. Uh, what is the best or toughest argument against God you've heard? Now, I know we're presuppositionalists. You can't argue unless you start with God. I get it. I get it. But don't, don't play yourself. You know that at some point you were in, you had an interaction with an interaction with someone, and they brought something up, and you were like good point i need to think about that a little bit so let's not pretend that we've never been almost stumped so if you've almost been stumped i'm not saying that you didn't have an answer eventually or you found a way what you're talking about eli yeah right 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 you know we want to we want to we want to be humble and admit our own shortcomings has there ever been an argument and by the way if you say no i'm totally I, i'm that's totally fine because i've heard some horrible arguments that people think are so awesome and i'm just like i don't see it but has there ever been uh, an argument that has been presented to you that really? Uh, welcome back, Sai. I'm probably having some technical difficulties there. Uh, you look good there. Um, the question: the question is, have we ever confronted a super tough argument against God? That um, just to give Sai some context, because he just came in. Um, I, we know that as presuppositionalists, you can't argue without God as a foundation. But has there ever been something that someone has presented that really gave you pause and like, huh? Like how how can I address that? Um, anyone that's open to anyone, uh, feel free to share the toughest objection against God you've ever heard. Well, you know, mine, <laughs> well, why don't you I've share dealt it? with it at length. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it wasn't aimed at Van Til, but the, the criticism was by Barry Stroud. And so basically, well, we start with Christianity and we show how God is a necessary precondition for the intelligibility of human experience. And so we lay out, you know, the metaphysical scheme of Christianity and give it to the unbeliever and say that if you reject this position, you're reduced to absurdity. You can't make sense out of anything. Then, well, you know, uh, you know, wise unbeliever might say, well, hold on. You haven't proven that God is actually real. You know, you've only proven that we have to believe that God exists and we have to believe these propositions in the Bible. 
and therefore that we just have to believe that Christianity is true to be rational. But you haven't actually proven that God actually exists and that he's really real and that, you know, this all isn't just some grand delusion or whatever. That stumped me for the better half of a year. Eli, I have to tell you, that's why I've written like three papers on this thing. Um, the way out of it was to just take a step back and realize that, well, hold on. Everyone has their own presuppositions. And so the criticism comes from a secular point of view. It assumes implicitly that we're all stuck in our egocentric pictures um, in some sort of Kantian divide where we can't really know what's outside of us. So we have to prove that. We can't just say that God exists and that's what we start with because that's not the default position. But of course, that's what's being taken for granted, isn't it? Because he's assumed that that's the default position. We start with the metaphysical picture that we're in touch with the external world, that we're in touch with God directly, with the scriptures and so forth, that we have knowledge of God. Um, and so that criticism just takes for granted that that metaphysical picture where we don't know for sure is the default position, that that's true until proven otherwise. Um, and so basically it just amounts to a big begging of the question or special pleading, if you will. Um, and so that's, that's what I had to struggle with for a long time. Basically that we're dealing with worldviews, not just beliefs, but we're coming to the table with different views of reality itself, not just what we believe cognitively internal to us. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, here's a question. We're going to, we're going to start wrapping things up. Um, I'm going to get to some of the super chats, but there are some, a couple of questions I want to make sure we, we hit. I want to get the super chats. There's just two of them here. And then there's a really good question that I think would be helpful for people to, to see how a presuppositionalist might address it. Uh, so Jacob, thank you so much for your $5 super chat. Jacob asks, what is your thoughts? And if, if you don't have any background in philosophy, that's fine. Um, we can, you know, answer the question as best you can. But what are your thoughts on Kant's one and only proof for God's existence? It has here work slash argument. And do you think this was any motivation in Van Til? So maybe a little bit on the role of Kant's argumentation as it relates to what Van Til was trying to do. I don't know, maybe uh, Brian or Joshua or anyone else who feels comfortable addressing that. Well, before um, the, the better answers are given, <laughs> let me make the observation really quickly. I, I think sure. others are probably more sophisticated philosophically than I am. Uh, I would just uh, observe this. Van Til believed that Kant was right in the sense that you need to have a precondition of intelligibility. Right. Uh, but he believed that Kant's answer, answer, <laughs> Kant's answer, <laughs> Kant's answer was getting wrong. getting all fancy, Kant's answer. <laughs> he <could not> answer. <laughs> so, so he believed it was the right question, but the wrong answer. And interestingly enough, if you read Van Til's writings, uh, Kant is the person that he considers himself most antithetical to in terms of, you know, something like human autonomy. He thinks that Kant was the epitome of... The, the uh, you know the the pursuit of autonomy you know he he Kant epitomized this better than anyone right so th those that like to just dismiss Van Til as being Kantian have kind of you know they've missed something fundamental I think right right anyone else want to jump on that one uh, yeah Jacob I think I answered your question in the chat I don't know if you read it or what not I've never heard of Kant's one and only proof for God's existence Kant categorized God into the noumenal category. He exists outside of our immediate phenomenal experiences. So we can't really know who or what God is. We can um, believe that God exists as what he called a postulate of practical reason, meaning that we can't really prove that God is real, but we have to still believe that God exists for the practical purposes of um, everyday experience. So I'm not sure what 
uh, this proof that Kant was arguing for with, uh, as it relates to God's existence is, unless I just overlooked something in my studies of Kant, but as far as I know, he Kant created such a divide between the phenomenal and noumenal that we just can't know or what or who God is. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, now, if I could just jump in just real quick with that go part. For it, Bill. Um, go ahead. Um, I, I know sometimes there's objection to precept that we're Kantians. I mean, there's all kinds of things against a precept, right? I've even heard, you guys perhaps have even heard that presuppositionalists were postmodern, which is kind of strange, the mo movement, the timing of that, and even when Van Til. Um, to me, I think part of even the um, the role of Kant and even Van Til is, um, again, uh, you know, uh, there could be much more deeper in this. I think there's also the context that um, Kant really influenced a lot of Western philosophy um, since his time period. I mean, even every other major philosopher is from there. Even, you know, David Hume talked about, like, he woke up from his dogmatic slumber um, from interacting. So so I think we must uh, make a clear distinction between um, grasping what Kant is trying to say and then responding as a Christian um, with some of the categories that he's laid out, with some of that language, with, with, with um, 18th century, 19th, early 1900s idealism in interacting with Kant versus actually us being Kantian. So I, I think that's um, part of that. That was the language of even the way he was trained in philosophy. Um, but again, I, you really see he's, um, even from all of his work, he's trying to put everything in a biblical view in understanding um, the context of contemporary philosophy as he uh, it was interacting and uh, older philosophy as he was understanding from a Christian worldview. Okay, thank you for that. I'd like Sai and Brian to take this next question. Um, and this is a good question, and anyone could chime in after that. But uh, how how does one use presuppositional apologetics against one who says we have the wrong canon? Uh, so you might. Uh, so this is a question that um, can deal with, for example, how do we use presuppositionalism against the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox or anyone? Now I now um, uh, Sai often says, well, you know. I'm by the grace of God, God uses me to, 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 to preach the gospel and to defend the faith. And, and God has used you in, in a very awesome ways, but I'm just a boiler room operator. <laughs> and that is the specific reason why I ask you this question, because chances are you probably don't have in-depth study in canon in canonical issues. Now, maybe you have, but I want to ask you so to show that you don't necessarily have to be in-depth studied in this area to give a biblically-based presuppositional response. So to your best ability, if you were speaking with someone who says, hey, you have the wrong canon of scripture, how do you deal with that uh, based upon your presuppositional perspective? And, and maybe, and maybe I'm assuming too much, and maybe kind of a limited knowledge of canonical studies. Um, I, I can give you a specific example of how I deal with Roman Catholics. Okay. Very often when I'm on the street, um, you know, doing evangelizing, I'll have a Roman Catholic come up to me and they'll thank me for for what I'm doing. And um, I, I'm usually gracious with them. I say, you know, I, I really appreciate, you know, that, that you come up and thank me for this. But do you understand that your church teaches that I'm condemned to hell for what mm -hmm. I believe? And they kind of look at me puzzled. I say, yeah, I believe in salvation by faith in Christ alone. Um, and, and your church teaches that if you um, believe in salvation by faith in Christ alone, then you're anathema. And that's what I believe. And so, you know, I, I would I well, I don't get into the canonicity issue. You know, I think there's there's um, gotcha answers. But again, I'm mostly concerned for their soul. So right. um, 
you know, and the thing is, the interesting thing about that is a lot of Roman Catholics that you meet on the street, when you say that you believe in salvation by faith in Christ alone, they say they believe that as well. They don't know that the church teaches that that's anathema. So, you know, I like to meet them on, on that level and um, tell them what I believe and how their church teaches that I'm cursed for it. And if they really believe that, then they need to study what their church teaches and get out of that church. Sure, sure. All right. How about you, Brian? Um, I would say, why do you think I have the wrong canon? Mm -hmm. um, and, and this depends entirely on how the how the question is phrased, but I would eventually get them back to that same point. I mean, the way it's it's worded, how do you press up against somebody saying you've got the wrong canon? So they're they're telling me or they're saying, why do I think, you know, how do I know I have the right canon? I mean, I the the corpus of scripture, the the entire writings of God, um, I ultimately know in the same way the Roman Catholic knows, in a sense, and that is based on faith. This is something I think that we overlook. And that is at the end of the day, and Bonson said this, this very clearly in his um, in his lecture series on the transcendental argument, we accept the authority of scripture on, you know, got from God. It's it's a, it's entirely based on authority. And Van Til says the same thing that that you know, philosophers will say, wait a minute, you're just accepting this on authority. That destroys your whole philosophy. And he comes back and says, no, this is the only salvation for mm. philosophy as a whole. Mm. Mm. Um, so it, it ultimately comes down to what we talked about before, and that is the content of, <clears throat> of the canon, the content of the revelation. So when somebody starts to ask you questions about the content of the revelation, <clears throat> where you're comparing the content of your revelation, as it were, against theirs, <clears throat> that's where you, you need to, to find out a little bit more about who they are and what their revelation is. Now, as a Roman Catholic, you know, I think we, we know the majority of what their canon is, and we know hopefully what their different interpretations of that are. And mm -hmm. at that point, we can talk about the question of authority. Um, <clears throat> but it, it, it really is, it's a question of comparing content, right? Mm -hmm. If, if, Put it this way, if Protestantism is true, then this follows. If Roman Catholicism is true, then this follows. It's right. always the comparison of your worldview against their worldview. Right. I, I thought this is, a, thank you for that. I thought this was a funny comment. Just shoot them with your cannon and then they'll know it's the right one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Can, All right. Can I throw in oh, yeah. one thing, Eli, yeah. real quick? Go for it. Yeah. One of the things that Van Til often used to say is that the foundational authority for Christians, this is just one way he used to express this, is uh, the self-attesting God speaking through Christ in Scripture. Right? That's our ultimate authority. The Christ who speaks in Scripture doesn't affirm the apocryphal books of the Roman Catholic Church or the additional or more confused collection of books found in Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy actually is not as consistent across the board as uh, some people might think. They, they're different canons among Eastern Orthodox people. But anyways, uh, Jesus didn't affirm that canon. You know, so Jesus speaking in Scripture affirmed the canon that Protestants believe today. So uh, there's nothing inconsistent uh, presuppositionally with us affirming the canon we do. Excellent. You All right. Well, add, we'll add, Sorry. Yep. Go for it. Go down. Go for it. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> you can go right after Jimmy. Okay. Yeah. Just real quick. Um, I, I think uh, we have to make a distinction between recognizing the canyon and determining the canyon. We in the church, um, the human responsibility part is recognizing. 
Um, this ties in earlier to even some of the different views of, of textual criticism. Um, I think you often see those that are apocryphal were never accepted uh, geographically in various places. You see them in various, especially some of the really weird ones, like uh, including Book of Enoch. You see, for instance, it only exists like a Sudanese version or Ethiopian version uh, and only one really good copy, or they're only localized in a small locale for various reason, for various uh, local agenda or uh, ecclesiastical agenda of the area. So I think we need to recognize that. Um, but Matt Slick, you were going to say more. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I get this a lot from Catholics, and I and I just say what you just said a little bit differently, but it's the same thing. I say the canon is established by God. As soon as the first pen wrote, the first part of the New Testament, for example, it was already inspired. And we know this because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. He's our authority. And he doesn't say that the church determines the canon. If anything, it's the canon that gives the foundation for the church's existence, the declaration of bishops, elders, apostles, prophets. It's the, that scripture is what they base it upon. So the church is not in authority over the canon, nor does it have the authority to determine the canon. It only recognizes the canon because the church is comprised of the sheep who hear the voice of God. And they say, oh, that's what that, that's scripture. They don't say I'm determining it's scripture. They say, we're recognizing it as scripture because of the sheep of God. The Roman Catholic Church, and I do a lot of talking on it, what it wants to do is say it has the superior authority over all things and salvation must be in the church, through its sacraments, through everything that it establishes. And it is the one that will determine what the Bible is because it wants to submit the scriptures to its authority and ultimately put it under its own ecclesiastical feet. Hmm. Very good. Interject here. One of the favorite things that I learned in dealing with Roman Catholics was from Matt Slick. And the question that he will ask them, um, he'll say, Is Jesus sufficient for forgiveness of your sins? Yeah. Say yes. And then he'll ask if um, they'll pray with him. And he'll pray, you know, to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And often they won't do that because they, you know, he'll expose that that they don't believe that Jesus is sufficient for forgiveness of their sins, that they have to go through a priest. But I love how he sets them up first. He asks them that question, then he says, ask if we'll pray with them. And if, of course, if they say they will, I mean, Matt can uh, talk about that as well. But then he'll pray with them for forgiveness of the sins and ask them, do you believe that your sins are forgiven now? And then show mm -hmm. the contradiction between that and what the Right. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, this would not be an epic discussion if we didn't creep up to two hours. So we're going to wrap things up here. You guys did an excellent job. I'm looking at a lot of the, I can't even, we can't even get to all the questions. We'd be here forever. This has been a super fascinating conversation. A lot of people are finding it beneficial and a lot of people actually like the, the, um, the format with multiple people here. And um, I hope that everyone feels like they got a fair shot in terms of answering questions and sharing their thoughts. Um, I tried my best to kind of move around as best I can. It, it can be difficult, but uh, I've enjoyed this a lot. So let's wrap things up. And um, I just want to go uh, to each one of you in a minute or less. Okay. Ready? Sai, I am an atheist. Refute me. I don't believe in God. One minute or less. That's not what the Bible says. Unpack that for us. You know, it, it's funny because uh, I, I, I've been, um, uh, this one woman, she's from Pennsylvania, she does evangelism on the street with her husband. And it's happened to her twice where a professor has come up to her and says, I'm an atheist. And she says, no, you're not. And they kind of, yeah. And her jaw dropped to the floor because she thought she would have an extensive argument about the, you know, trying to refute the fact that they're not atheists. But, you know, it's as simple as that. I just say that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, 
this God. And now what's going to happen? Tragedy in their life. Are they going to come and argue philosophy with them for six hours or the one who got to the heart of the issue? That by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, they're going to come to the person that spoke to the most truth with them and wasn't duped by their argument. All right. Thank you for that. Anthony Rogers, I'm, I'm Ali Dawa. Ali Dawa is here, man. He just came into the chat and he goes, hey, Anthony, you don't know anything, bro. Islam is the truth. How can you, how would you, I can't do an Ali Dawa impression. Um, uh, but if you could refute, if you had one minute with Ali Dawa who said Islam is true, how would you in a minute or less un, un, unleash an attempted refutation of Islam within that span? Well, there are any number of ways to do that. I could either point to the fact that if the Quran is what it claims to be, the revelation of the, the God that I described earlier, who has created a world that he's forever locked out of, then the Quran can't be what it claims to be. And therefore, we have no reason to believe that the God it talks about is the God who is. Uh, but I could also point to the fact that the Quran in numerous places, Surah 3.3, Surah 5, over and over again, speaks of the Old and New Testament scriptures as given by God, and not only as authoritative when given, but in the possession, at the time of Muhammad, uh, in the possession of Jews and Christians, and even requires, the, the Quran requires Christians to, not that it's authoritative over us, but uh, for the Muslim, it's authoritative. It says that Jews and Christians stand on nothing unless they stand on the scriptures that were given by God and judge by them. In fact, Muhammad in the Quran, uh, one of the fascinating things about the Quran is that Muhammad is often subject to doubt, and those doubts are apparent in the Quran. The, the, the Quran is supposed to be Allah's direct speech to Muhammad and, in, and from Muhammad to others. Well, in Surah 1094, addressing Muhammad, Allah says to him, if you are in doubt about what we have revealed, ask those who were given the scriptures before you, meaning the Jews and Christians. So I always tell people, and in this case, I'd say to Ali Dawah, you've come to the right person. Your God told you to come to me and ask me if you're in doubt, uh, if what Muhammad was disclosing to people is true. And my answer to you is no, it's wrong. And if you say that that you can't trust me, well, then, you know, your God gave you bad advice. Your God told your prophet and you, by implication, to come to people like me. And if you can't come to people like me and, and get a good answer, then you got bad advice. Your, your God is not in the business of of giving good advice. I, I you know, Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Those are my awesome. simple approaches. There, there's more sophisticated things we can say. Sure, sure. Excellent. All right, Pastor Jimmy. Okay. Here's a question that I heard. Someone who was criticizing presuppositional apologetics and presuppositionalism. The argument was that it is not pastoral because it does not take into consideration the genuine doubts that believers struggle with. If you, Pastor Jim, are so certain of the Bible, what does that say about me when I do not feel certain? I'm struggling with doubt. There must be something wrong with me. So, um, you know, how do you interact with a person struggling with doubt within the church and they see you coming off as so certain of the Bible and they're saying, I don't have that certainty. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I, I, what's going on? How can you speak to that? from a pastoral perspective in 60 seconds or less. Yeah, in 60 seconds or less, I would say encourage them to read the Bible. And I'll probably open the Bible and read, go with them through the gospel. Just seeing the Old Testament, how it points towards Christ, all its various messianic prophecies, 
all its beauty about its description about uh, God's grace and salvation with systematic theology, and even also as well biblical theology, how it marches towards the cross, and even also mention even going further, even just saying about the biblical view of sinfulness is so real that their doubt and their struggles, that believers' struggles from books like the Psalms, Scripture account for that, and yet in all of that, God is growing us even through that, that making sure that they're really a believer, making sure that they are from that to say scripture is what you need as you journey with your doubt with all of this mm. excellent very good i like you man i just met you i gotta have you back on we, we, we gotta talk some more i like i like your, your passion man it's there's there's a genuine i mean i love all you guys but there's a genuineness that comes across and when you share and it, it just uh i love that all right matt okay ready no okay i am a roman catholic and you've you know, been lying to me this whole time. You, you know your problem. I'm role, I'm role playing, right? I, I oh, have Hispanic, okay. a lot of Hispanic. They're Roman Catholics, you know. Okay. Uh, so, I'm role playing. I am a Roman Catholic. The problem with you, Matt, is that you have the wrong authority. You are not part of the correct church. You could you could quote your scripture, Matt, but it's our church that gave you that scripture. Right, without Mother Church guiding you, bro, you would be lost. You are, you are lost. I mean, Matt is a Presbyterian, and James White is a Baptist. Look at all the division that you guys have in sixty seconds or less. How do you precept a Roman Catholic who comes from that angle? Go for it. Well, they're always affirming the authority of the Catholic Church, and I just turn it on on the, them. I say, how do you know the Catholic Church is true? That's it. Presuppositionally, by the possibility of the contrary, it is the God's authority in the church. There's no other higher authority. So, where'd you get where'd you get that documentation? Where'd you get it from? See, this, I do this all the time with them. I just say they say. I just ask it. Well, where's that founded? They they and they don't want to go to the scriptures and say that's where they get it. They okay. don't want to do that. And I'm always pointing to the scriptures. That's that's what happens. I have this con kind of conversation pretty frequently, two, three times a month. Uh, it's pretty common. And you just want to get them to believe, or not to believe, but you want you do. But you just want to get them to, well, what are you talking about? What authority? Where'd you get that? How do you know the Catholic Church is true? Because you feel it? That doesn't work. Because the Catholic Church said so? Then how do you know it's true? You know, well, because the Bible says, now we're talking. So which is the authority you're going to go to? And then they'll say, well, you know, you're interpretive this or that. And I'll say, how do you know what interpretive uh what, what interpretation is the right one? Since the Roman Catholic Church has only officially interpreted, I think, 11 verses in 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. So, and How do you know you're interpreting the Roman Catholic Church correctly? Mm, yeah. Well, because uh, <clears throat> we just read it according to what the Scripture says. And I usually at that point go to Luke or uh, John. No, 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 I'm uh, saying that's a reply to the Roman Catholic. If I know. If they're asking us about, um, I'm not supposed yeah. to jump How do you know if you interpret? No, I, well, I, I think, get that I think too. What Brian, I think what Brian is getting at is if a Roman Catholic challenges your interpretation of scripture because you don't have the authority, it's like, how do you know that's the right interpretation? Well, when a, when Rome when Rome proclaims doctrines authoritatively, you still have to exegete Rome's authoritative declaration. Right, right. And not even Roman Catholics agree on, on everything that Rome that's said. That's right. That's right. Well, well, just just take them to Luke eleven thirty five. Jesus wept, and I say <laughs> I'm going to interpret this. I'm going to interpret it. My interpretation is that he he wept. Okay, <laughs> he, he cried. So do I need authority to get that right? Am I right? And I'll say yes. Okay, well then I need authority for that. No. Well, let's continue with this. Right. That means what you just pointed out there. The reality is that because the word of God is in human language, 
God has seen fit to make human language a sufficient mechanism to convey his truth. And we're able to talk yeah. about that language and understand it. I like that. Now, Jesus wept, Jesus wept is also a theologi is theologically important because it emphasizes yeah. his humanity. So they can't just say, well, only in areas of theology, because that's also a theological truth as well. That's right. right. You can also take it in Romans 14, 5, which says one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Mm -hmm. If we're supposed to subject ourselves to the authoritative interpretive methodology of the Roman Catholic Church, then why does Paul say that in Romans 4, 4, uh, 14, 5? He wouldn't say that if your position was correct. So mm -hmm. can you please interpret that verse for me? And as soon as they start, it's over for them. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Joshua, in 60 seconds or less, okay, I don't need presuppositionalism. I'm an evidentialist. You're the only one that's going to get this one. I do not need your, your uh, presuppositional foundation for knowledge. I can start with direct acquaintance. <laughs> oh. David, is that you? <laughs> sorry sorry andrew if david ever watches this i love you and you know i love you i'm never belligerent against you or anything <laughs> yes um you're muted eli i don't know what you said yeah. all right so direct acquaintance i don't i don't need presuppositions that's i'm directly acquainted with my experience <laughs> so no presuppositions and so presuppositionalism is false when it appeals to a circular foundation i have a non-circular foundation Direct acquaintance. Go. Congratulations. You've just subjectivized everything that you've just said because it's your direct acquaintance. You have 8 billion other people in the world to go through with their direct acquaintance as to uh, okay. what really is and isn't true. Um, yeah. I mean, there's really nothing else to it. That's basically a foundationalist approach where, well, I hold to these presuppositions and I have to hold to them because that's what makes um, discourse rational like you know nature is uniform or my senses are reliable or whatever but i can't justify them i just have to presuppose them well i mean i don't have to say anything else at that point i mean everything's just subjectivized to your opinion so who cares i have an objective reference point and his name's god and i can make sense out of um you know the intelligibility of human experience objectively not just subjectively according to my direct acquaintance so according to your position you've just subjectivized everything you've spoken to the mic too long you've hung yourself you've reduced yourself to absurdity. So my work's done in that regard. Now, let me show you the Christian position and show why you need my position, why you rely on my position in order to reject my position. Excellent. Very good. And Brian, you get the cherry on the top. There, it, There's no such thing as an, a conversation discussion on presuppositionalism <laughs> without this question. It, it, I, I, I imagine it was somewhere in the comments. Okay. How would you respond? to the irrefutable objection to Wait. presuppositionalism, but it's circular, bro. <laughs> there you go. It's circular. How can you hold to a circular apologetic? That's redonkulous. Go ahead. Okay. Well, <laughs> presup is not circular. Arguments are circular, right? So if I'm going to make an argument and I'm going to assume the thing that ends up in my conclusion, then that's circular. There is what's called epistemic circularity when we're talking about the wider circle or as opposed to the vicious circle, the what, what's the term, Sai? The virtuous, virtuous circle. Right. Um, so I, I would say that not all circularity is fallacious. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, here's why. I'm just going back to what Joshua said from the perspective of everybody is starting with presuppositions, even if they say they have something like direct acquaintance or, or something else that allows them to escape that circle. And we can go to scripture to show that. It is the nature of the way God created us and our limitations as compared to him, that we cannot be autonomous. That, mm. you know, so we don't get the luxury of, of arguing without that circle. So would you make a distinction between reasoning and reasoning in a circle and arguing in a circle? Is that an important distinction to make or? Well, in other words, in other words as a presuppositionalist, we're reasoning in a circle in the sense that we're presupposing the God they were arguing for, but well, our argument is not. Let me, let me clarify this by saying as a presuppositionalist, as an apologist, um, according to scripture, we're called to give an answer for the hope that, that that's in us. Right. That doesn't always require proving God, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the whole idea of circularity doesn't even necessarily enter into the conversation unless we go there right at the beginning, which a lot of people do, or the person that we're talking with eventually gets to the point, well, how do you know the Bible is true? Mm -hmm. And it's fair to say because God revealed it on, you know, on authority to me. And then sure. if they keep pushing, sure, at some point we're going to get to our most basic foundation. But as long as we are presupposing scripture, and, and we're not trying to prove it from a neutral perspective, we're arguing presuppositionally. Mm. We're not giving up our belief in the truth of scripture and it's always informing our answer. And we are not shy about that. Mm. That's, that's what makes a presuppositionalist. A presuppositionalist. Eli, if I may interject yeah. here, sure. I'm not going to explain it all. This will be a cliffhanger. If we ever do this again. <laughs> and, and I think it was Scott who asked the question or addressed the fact that there are, um, educated Vantillians, and then you have your street Vantillians. I will tell you right now that there are three distinct types of circular reasoning involved in presuppositionalism. And I'm not going to get into it, but there are three different types of circular reasoning, and all of them are different, and all of them can be addressed individually. But I'll just leave that out there. There are three different types, all different in nature, and all have their own explanation, and all of them are completely rational. I'm just going to say that. Come and on, man. All right. Well, that's a good little uh, hang on. <laughs> Types of people that raise the objection. If an unbeliever says it's circular, I say, "What's wrong with that?" Exactly, <laughs> it's objective. Yeah, and then if it's a Christian that says you start, R.C. Sproul, I love R.C. Sproul, but he would say he starts with human reason. How do you know that's valid? Well, it's from God. The, the difference between us and that position is that we rest the circularity for some reason do not see their own circularity. Yeah. Everybody presupposes conditions that they assume to be true by which they then argue. Everybody is circular. We just ask them, well, which worldview can account for the circularity makes sense of the presupposition? See, there's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He's like, you want to hear the next two? You got to wait. Yeah, you got to wait till next time. <laughs> I, I just want to tell each and every one of you guys, I appreciate so much that you guys have given me so much of your time for this awesome conversation. I hope that you guys enjoyed this conversation and, and I know a lot of people have found it super helpful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate each and every one of your ministries, what you guys are doing, um, especially for some of you guys to have more content out there to be able to see how God is using that in so many different ways. And each one of you has, has blessed me uh, in different ways as well. So I appreciate you as uh, partners in ministry, brothers in Christ, and I love you guys, and I appreciate you guys. Thank well, you thank so you much. Thank you, Eli, for having for us on. on. Bless you, Eli. Thank, thank you, Eli. Thank you for having us.
Ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this discussion, uh, click the like button, share it, um, rewatch it. I'm actually going to take some segments of this and make shorter videos uh, so that people can kind of hopefully get to a specific question that they uh, want to hear in isolation. So um, thank you so much for listening, guys. This concludes our epic precept conversation. Until next time, I'm going to plan one in the future, an epic Calvinist discussion. Uh, that should be fun as well. So until next time, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.